Hi, I'm Mark Kent. And I'm Jacob Pusey. And you're listening to the Art and Science of Running podcast. If you climb and you see So welcome everyone to uh, to this latest episode of the Art and Science of Running podcast, and um, I'm here with Jacob again as per usual, and uh, this time we're in Jacob's house, so swapping it around from uh, from what we've done uh, previously. Uh, today's going to be a, a bit of sort of potential standalone episode um, in the sense that we're going to dive into the subject of something extremely topical right now, making waves all over the internet, social media has been for the last ten days, and that is of course. Um, some people have billed as sort of the, the biggest event um, in the history of running, which is uh, termed the INEOS uh, 159 project, Kipchoge's successful uh, marathon uh, under uh, two hours. And so that's what we're going to dive into today. And we're going to give some insight into elements of that event and also what it means. Uh, we've kind of held off in some ways from doing this podcast immediately after the event because a lot of information has come out since the event has happened and that's that's key to to gaining a good perspective a broad perspective on, on what we're talking about so uh we actually uh, we actually did record a podcast via skype last week and the truth is is we i can't well we look yeah we went back over the podcast and we actually didn't really do enough justice to the topic. So we're coming back again. This is actually, it sounds to you guys like it's podcast number one of this topic, but it's actually number two for us because um, we were just really unhappy that we didn't, we didn't hit on certain points and give and give enough uh, meat around the subject. So, um, so this is our kind of like second bite at it. We're really kind of, we're not aiming to uh, reinvent the wheel here with the subject because clearly there are lots of people out there talking about the subject on different platforms and, um, you know, some of those opinions are very, very valid opinions. We're going to try and uh, incorporate as much kind of factual background information and evidence as we can. I can throw in a little bit about uh, having worked with, with Kipchoge's group and um, with uh, some of the people involved uh, and give some insight there as well. Yeah, and I think hopefully you guys listening will get an un a real kind of broad understanding of, of, of what's going on here, not just with the event itself, but w what it means in a bigger context and pick up some little nuggets of knowledge that maybe you hadn't heard about or known about before. This is going to potentially be a, we don't actually know how long this episode is going to be, but it can, it can potentially be our longest episode yet. Cause there really is, as you, as you'll hear, as we go forward, there's a lot, there's a lot to dive into a lot of different elements to, um, to get heads around. So, um, yeah, so without, uh, without any more intro, um, so we'll, we'll kick off with the event itself in, in Vienna, which was, um, yeah, sort of 10, 11 days ago now. Did you, did you watch it live yourself, uh, Jacob? Or? Uh, I I set it up to watch live, and I I actually was asked to turn it off <laughs> because uh, we were trying to sleep. And um, and to be fair, um, 
I was actually visiting family uh, in Oregon, oh. and so um, I was um, the sleep schedules of of each of each member of the family, especially the kids, was off, and wow. I was pretty exhausted anyway. I don't think I would have been able to stay up. Um, we were kind of all under the weather, so no, I didn't actually watch all of it live. Um, I had it queued up and ready to watch live, and and then I did. Uh, kids wake up every hour during the night, and I was that guy that even though you're not supposed to have screens in the room and stuff like that, I was checking Twitter and, and all the rest. So I like um, that. That's, I'm, that's I'm a junkie. Tr- <laughs> that's yeah. the true reality of like, I think a lot of people would have been the same, especially in this part of the world. It's like, you know, one o'clock in the morning or 12 or whatever, midnight, whatever. And yeah. So I think, I think a lot of people are probably the same. <laughs> I had intentions of watching it live. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, from the perspective of, uh, and we always have this going on in the podcast, we have two, two different backgrounds and, and perspectives and, you know, as a runner, um, as a as a professional coach, um, yeah, what what's your what's your kind of like overall uh, feeling about um, what you saw and and um, what appeared to, like the, basically the su- success of him breaking the two hour barrier? Well, I'll approach it from a number of different angles. I I think first off, I'll I'll approach it from a <laughs> an organizational um, perspective. I I'm an event director. And the orchestration of that event and, and just how well um, everything came together was appeared seamless, uh, not just from a marketing perspective, but just uh, the transitions with the pacers and things like that. It, it, it clearly took uh, a lot of thinking and, and practice. I don't, I don't think everyone just showed up the morning of and said, hey, let's go break two. Um, I, I think it's been years if not months in the making um and uh or months if not years in the making and uh and it wasn't just kipchoge and and then and running team and patrick saying and his group um but it was the pacers from all over the world that um was probably um now i'm gonna put my anthropologist hat on that that was that was one of the most endearing um i was gonna pieces. say did you just find that kind of cool that all these people came together for one cause oh yeah it was it was super cool you had the Ingerbritsen brothers um or however you say their names from from norway uh, we've mentioned uh, in our in our heart rate discussion how the norwegians kind of set the bar as far as uh that type of training and and uh it's really cool to see non-east africans in the mix with a bunch of east africans and uh i I liked seeing that um not that i have anything against east africans but i'm not east african so it's kind of nice to see someone that looks kind of like me in the mix with people who appear to be a superior i didn't see any beards dude (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if there were any beards um it was cool to see matt centrowitz up there again we mentioned matt in episode seven um and his team bowerman track club um it was cool to see a, a a former, um, you know, 1500 runner leading the pace group. And then another former 1500 5k guy who I, I will be a lifelong fan of, um, Bernard Legat. He was up there. Um, it looked like it wasn't announced or maybe I didn't notice it. Maybe there were some subtle announcements, but, um, a lot of people who were over for the world champs in Doha, it seems like people just kind of hung out over there. I, d- I didn't see that many people came back stateside, that, that, at least people that are based in, in the U.S. A lot of people just stayed on the other side of the, the Atlantic and uh, and did that, which I think is cool because it was yeah. kind of this element of secretiveness, but also that 
that's probably when the orchestration was going on. Not at the World Champs, but afterwards they probably went and practiced, figured out where they were going to be and what they were going to do. I know Vienna wasn't announced until last minute. But yeah, I, I liked seeing those familiar faces. Lopez Lamong, again, who we mentioned in, in Episode 7 as well. Um, it was fun to see him. Um, it was also really cool to see um, Kipchoge acknowledge his pacers. Um, he is so humble. And if there's going to be a face of the sport mm. or someone who embodies all that is good <laughs> in the world or in the sport of running. I can't think of a better spokesman um, than Kipchoge. And I think that that's why people like him so much. Mm. Like he's, he's almost Yoda-ish in terms of just how simple his wisdom is. And it's a tough thing because, um, well, I know for a fact, obviously like, his his social media is controlled. Someone else, someone posts on social media for him. For sure, um, he has input. Like he can he can he can request something to be posted on the social media, and that's difficult, right? When you're at that level and you're that famous, people uh, control certain parts of um, of your of your image. Mm-hmm. For him to still stay pretty true to who he is originally, mm-hmm. and still um, and still affect people in in, a, in such a positive way like that, and and be and be such a great role model. That's that's a tough thing because <laughs> like when there's when there's a lot of things that you're not in control of, it, you know, yeah, like that's pretty that's pretty difficult to say. <laughs> well, it, it's disarming and and I actually love it because some of the people who are uh pretty aggressive journalists mm. who've gone after other good athletes to to try and, you know, make a scandal or or try and uh find skeletons or turn over rocks and things like that to, to make sure no stone is left unturned when they're reporting, it disarms even them. Like you, they, I think, I think people see him. I, I think I actually heard Alex Hutchinson. I'm not saying he's in that camp, but um, I think I heard him even say, you know, like when you ask him what his favorite books book is, he says the seven habits of highly effective people. Um, and that's a bunch of cliches, basically. Like it's a, it's a bunch of principles that are that are true and and that should be that if and when adhered to, generally help people. But really, really, you you have all day every day in between your runs to read, and the your favorite book is the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Like that's that's pretty basic. And he's like, yeah. And I I read it multiple times. You know, like, like I like to return back to the simplicity of that book, and. Uh, and so it's it's just it's just fun to see someone who like you said is so true to who he is and to his core values. Yeah, yeah. And uh and it it, it was a beautiful thing. Um there's a term in in anthropology or cultural studies uh communitas. And I do think that there was this collective experience that yeah. every person that watched it, even those that wanted to doubt, even those that wanted to critique who was funding the project, whether it was a dirty oil company or a dirty big shoe company, all of that went away when they saw Kipchoge Mm. do what he did, break away from his pacers, (laughs) hug his wife, hug his coach. Um, It was a beautiful thing. Like, I totally agree. There is that. It's, uh, I mean, we have people in the, come into the clinic that I work in and, um, in, in the week proceeding and saying, uh, Hey Mark, like you know, obviously asking me like what involvement I have in it, but then they're also saying like that they're going to stay up and um, uh, and watch it live and and they're really jazzed about it and um, 
and these are relatively modest runners in Calgary, you know. So um, there's definitely something to be uh, said about that. Um, uh, clearly, that is a positive spin out of it. Is that you know, for one two-hour period, a lot of people around the world came together. I think there were over, eventually, over a million people watching it live. Yeah. Um, several like the thousands of people actually there um, as well. Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, touching on the subject you just touched on, which is really interesting because. We'll get into this a bit later on, but obviously, um, um, preceding this two years ago was a Breaking Two project that happened in Monza, Italy, and it was orchestrated by Nike. Different, different now in Vienna because in Monza, Nike had full control, so they were very much in control of the budget and the people that were used, and they could bring in whoever they wanted. Um, uh, this particular event in Vienna, a total different proposition because you've got three entities sort of playing out together, and there's others as well, but three main, and that is NN Running who basically managed the athletes, essentially, but uh, mostly Kipchoge, some of the paces too. Um, and then you've got Ineos, who, um, uh, who are a chemicals company, uh, primarily petrochemicals uh, British company, um, who are really making a play in uh, elite sport to try and improve brand image, essentially. And they've got a lot of money to throw at things. Um, don't really fully understand necessarily the sports, but they know how to market it. And then you've got Nike, because they're still in. They have to still be in, but they don't really want to foot the whole budget for the whole thing, right? <laughs> and take on all that risk. Um, but many of the people involved in the inner circle are still employed by Nike. Under you know, they're, they're just working kind of almost in in sort of um, side project for Nike at, at that point. So actually, really difficult. I was privy to various emails, um, <laughs> you know, pr uh, circulating prior to the event about um, to do with organisation and to do with key people within the inner circle. And I saw in those emails how the emails would get bounced around because you had people representing very different uh, groups. There's actually um, at least one guy uh, was in, was heavily involved from the London Marathon. So in terms of London Marathon organisation, uh, you know, he was pulled in because he was a great logistical organiser of an event like that. So there were so many groups involved, almost too many cooks in the kitchen. And mm -hmm. I thought before the event is this going to work out? Not because Kipchoge <laughs> has a problem, but can it work out as an event because there were so many agendas and so many people trying to work together um, coming from different viewpoints. Totally echo what you said, though. Um, on the day, super impressive uh, execution in, in at every level. Um, but particularly for those two hours where people were moving around and um, uh, paces were having to be organised and um, start line was being organised, timing was happening, finish line was being organised. Super impressive um, uh, logistical uh, choreography and uh, execution of the event. Quite something. There was one little period, like two-thirds from the end, no, about three-quarters from the end, about 30 minutes or so from the end, um, <laughs> where, where two of the paces made a tiny error. They're a little bit slow jumping in in front of Kipchoge, and uh, but I think if you even think about that, you just you're just pulling like <laughs> you're, you're just pulling on tiny hairs. I mean, it was ultimately a um, a near flawless execution, um, uh, which was yeah super super impressive. Um, well, and, and that's the thing about a, a marathon um, or an ultra marathon, pretty much anything. I'd say longer than just an all-out VO2 max effort. So uh, it's one thing to make a to make an error or a misstep or, or to get boxed in in like a 1500 or an 800 race is over. You, you can't respond fast enough if, um, if you don't respond on the fly immediately. Um, 
Whereas with a marathon, it's possible to have a, even a rough patch here or there, even, even in that effort based on, I think we'll get into it, but, yeah. but based on the data, no one was doubting that, that Kipchoge was both fit enough, but also that, that the team of runners there with him and, and the technology was going to mm. help him break yep. this, this two hour barrier. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Now you, you know more about the history of the two hour barrier. Sure. Uh, I mean, obviously it's been a barrier since the dawn of time. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it has just recently been, been broken. Um, and, and I think we can get into the technicalities of that. This was a, a, a spectacle or a, yeah, unofficial, an, an, an unofficial uh, record. record yeah. It was an exhibition. Um, so it wasn't, we talked about an exhibition again in episode seven about the Bowerman Track Club, the 5k. Um, but they, they were doing that to get an actual qualifying time. And they, they did jump through the necessary hoops to ensure that those times were valid. Uh, right. Yeah. With, like I said, by, by putting, the, uh, the railings, the, the, the railings yeah. on, a, on what is an otherwise practice track, you know? <laughs> and so the railings that not only is that an expense, but it's, it's a bit of work to actually ground those and make sure that they're right on the line. And that's just yeah. one of the many things that they had to do to, to certify that track and certify those times. Mm. Whereas this exhibition mm. was more of, uh, it was more for marketing, but it was also, mm. um, just to see if, if you pull out all the stops yeah. and if, and if you don't get caught up with all of the hoop jumping, mm. is it possible for a human yeah. on their own two feet, mm. uh, to cover the distance in under two hours? And, yeah. um, I think in hopes that, uh, that would set the stage for future yeah. world record attempts on certified courses. And that's and it. Things I, like, I like yeah. to believe the same thing, which is that, um, in the same way, I think we can agree that breaking two did. Um, I hope, I, I, and I believe to some extent that that part of 159 is inspiring people in the future to drop their times and run faster and faster. And it's, um, uh, yeah, but yeah, we're talking about the, um, touching there on the, on the history a little bit. I, I just kind of go into, um, just for people listening, just a, a very, very kind of short, uh, potted history of, um, of where this is all kind of come from. Um, so the first that I heard about um, any kind of uh, making a project about breaking two hours in the marathon was at the end of 2013. In 13, if you're a running geek, you probably know this already, but um, one of the biggest half marathons in the world is called the Great North Run. It's in the north of the UK. And in 13, it was one of the one of the great moments that I'll always remember watching watching live. Um, uh, Mo Farah, uh, Haile Gabriel-Selassie, and uh, Kenanesa Bekele went head-to-head in a half marathon. It was quite an incredible thing. It was sort of... It was kind of like the um, the swan song, really, for Gilbert Selassie's career, and um, uh, one of th- that was a great race in itself. But at the end of it, um, Gilbert Selassie um, uh, sort of dropped this kind of very casually dropped in uh, this idea that oh, yeah, well, you know, me and some other people are actually looking at this idea of like, can we break two hours in the marathon because that's we think that, that's the next barrier. And um, what he was basically talking about there in, in thirteen was uh, a guy called Yanis Pitsilidis, who's um, Probably the foremost, yeah, he's the foremost expert in studying genetics um, in uh, endurance and distance running, and particularly the studies he's done in East Africa. You know, do they have a, a big genetic advantage in East Africa? So, uh, well-known researcher, um, uh, works at a university in the UK today. He sort of formulated the idea of this concept, and it was called it was just called sub 
two hours basically and uh, and he brought uh, Gibbous Lassie into this very early on um, for obvious reasons he was a legend right <laughs> knew a lot about the marathon and running and um, their focus was really on mostly on academics and uh, bringing universities together you know, and each university would study sort of a different aspect, and then you bring it all together in this kind of ultimate human performance. Like, how can we optimize the person um, to run sub two hours? And one of the interesting things, like in the first few months of it, um, some basic kind of metadata analysis was done, and uh, it it basically showed um, this early work that it would be about twenty to thirty years for somebody to kind of organically drop the times and be able to break two hours. So it was always seen in those early days as something, you know, this ain't gonna happen tomorrow. It's gonna to take a long time and it's not gonna be the current generation of runners. We're looking at somebody that's barely born, the kind of thing, you know, like, um, and then that product, that, that uh, project sort of went on through, um, uh, through 14 and into 15, but it kind of stalled in terms of um, growing and receiving enough funding and getting enough people behind it. And it was always kind of uh, Yanis's baby in a way. And, um, and so uh, there's been, and this kind of predates, you know, what, what, what Nike have done subsequently. And um, uh, it wasn't really until 2016 that officially Nike launched their own uh, project. Clearly they were thinking about it already in 13 and they'd already seen what Yanis had done. Because one of the early runners that was brought into that sub two project was Kenanesa Bekele. He was actually originally uh, sort of headhunted to be part of that project. And, um, uh, and so. Because well, he was supposed to be the heir apparent of the king, of, of King Haile. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Gilles rather than the, yeah, the king yeah. of Ethiopia. Um, and of course, you know, um, Bekele had just had won, he'd won that race against Mo Farah in the half marathon there. And the, it was all about, you know, when he comes to the marathon, which would actually turn out to be in 14. Um, where he debuted in Paris at 2.05, that was kind of like, you know, what can... Because uh, at this point, Kipchoge really wasn't on the map in a big way. Mm -hmm. um, so everyone was looking at Bikeli. And it, and what that tells you is, early on, it wasn't really about what any one shoe company. Yanis was really focused on um, science and, um, you know, academic research, and it didn't really matter like where you came from. And... Um, so what changed, of course, in sixteen with the announcement, Nike's announcement of breaking two, was now it became that became that became an Italian Nike thing, mm -hmm. and um, and for, I, I kind of feel a little bit sorry in a way for Yanis because his project still exists today, but it's not done anything, okay. um, and of course, yeah, Nike have really put the put the foot down on, on the gas pedal, uh, with a lot of money and a lot of resource. Um, I'll interject. Um, we've both spent a lot of time in academe, um, yeah. but I, I'm not the least bit surprised that if all you're doing is depending on academics coming together and generating research mm. and actually sharing that research mm. and collaborating um, without a major player, a major mm. funding source like a Nike or like an Ineos, mm. uh, it's hard to imagine that actually happening in part because of the nature of research. People, yeah. people do research based on whatever grants they can get. And so unless there was a funding source to provide all of these grants to allow this, yeah. the, the, the forerunner of the breaking two project. Yeah. I'm, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Um, in, in fact, there's a book called range that I think we're going to talk yeah, about it at some okay. point yeah. um, by David Epstein. And that's one of, one of his big points is that, 
in science and, and everything else, people are so specialized mm. and, and they will focus on one thing because that's where they'll get their funding. It's not because that's what the world needs. It's, no, yeah, it's yeah. The, in order for them to keep their job and feed their families, yeah, yeah. they have to get that, use that funding source oh, yeah. and, and study some obscure thing. Yes. Um, and so I'm not the least bit surprised that a university didn't, yeah. or that multiple universities didn't mm. see this vision unless, again, someone yeah. came in with this this big yeah. source of, of cash flow for each of the yeah. each of the scientists mm-hmm. and uh, maybe there was some funding but but there again was, th- yeah. th- that that is always that yeah. seems to always be where the ceiling is it's yeah where's the cash and i think people hadn't um so when we go back to like this idea uh, and there was there was there was some data crunch behind this it was it was totally legit that um that through organic natural process it was going to take 20 to 30 years and of course that doesn't excite some people who have a lot of money in their pockets okay <laughs> and uh and then uh, and that kind of leads you down a stepwise process where each year you're not going to produce any huge result because it's very incremental that you're mm-hmm. you're not really too fussed anyway because you know your future person that's going to run that time as i say may, may, maybe hasn't even been born yet and so but you're also used to and I, don't get me wrong I, again I worked in academe for way too long but um, and I'm not I don't have issues with public employees or anything like that but but when you're used to bureaucracy yes that's probably why their timeline was what it was it yeah. wasn't just yeah that evolutionarily mm-hmm. physiologically that humans weren't capable of doing it right. it was that there's so much red tape involved right. <laughs> just to get the research done that yeah. we likely won't be able to see what humans potential right. actually is yeah, um, yeah. I, that's just yeah. again yeah. that's just my own commentary but i yeah. having been involved with large projects that that are supposed to be uh holistic in nature and collaborative yeah they're often very ineffective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway. So, yeah, I mean, basically, um, you know, Nike, obviously, they could have come into uh, to Yanis's project and um, and given him a check. Uh, but Nike are who they are. Um, you know, they uh, they have the domination they have in the sportswear market because they're, uh, they're an assertive company. They're an opportunist company. They see something, they see an opportunity, they go for it. And they've got the money to back it up. And that's, that's essentially what's, what's happened there. Um, so uh, there's been some talk about uh, a guy called Sandy Bodecker and um, you know the genesis of uh, this concept of uh, breaking two, um, uh, but I, but that really came later. That w- that was only crystallised later when when sub two already existed and that whatever. Um, and then uh, so yeah, through sixteen, obviously a lot of work was done by Nike, a lot of money put into research teams, and and essentially they did what what Yanis um, and other people have done before, which is you identify what's holding this back. You know, what's the game changer? What can we add that jumps this forward and makes this happen? Obviously, for Nike, it's the shoe. So a huge amount of effort going into the shoe development through 16. And we know, we talked about this before, kind of the um, this sort of seminal shoe, the kind of legendary shoe for marathon running that a lot of records were set in. And I, I used to remember like trying to get hold of this shoe for people because it was like discontinued and there were stockpiles um, in certain parts of the world you can get hold of, which was the, the Nike Zoom Streak 3. Um, which came in a kind of orange tiger stripe or a red one or a whatever gray one. And, um, you know, people like Bekele were wearing this shoe. Everyone wanted to wear this shoe. And um, uh, you couldn't buy it anymore. And that's, and Nike knew this. Everyone knew this. The Zoom Streak um, 3 had a very stiff plastic plate in it that really kind of um, not only gave torsional stiffness to the foot uh, rigidity, but also gave a certain amount of uh, forward rigidity for propulsion. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's where Nike started, of course. And I remember being on Nike campus doing something else with Nike in June, June, July of t- 2016. And people were already running and wearing that original white 
a Frankenstein uh, version of the of the Zimstreet Three, okay. and uh, uh, that then led to a study which was done by which we can talk about in a bit, um, which was done uh, done by a group, and um, Nike totally identified that the shoe was like this big area that could have a huge impact, um, but they looked into other things as well. So they, of course uh, they looked into th things like weather conditions, courses, uh, hydration, nutrition. Uh, how you could use paces, all that kind of stuff too, and um, and that led to breaking to the event, of course, uh, which was in uh, May of two thousand and seventeen in in Monza, and I kind of like see that event as a true scientific experiment. You know, it wasn't done in front of a huge crowd. It was it was um, a lot of things were scientifically motivated, and no one in the team knew. Uh, actually what the result was going to be you know was he going to do it was he going to be close was he going to be way off uh so it was the true kind of pure kind of science of like what are we going to get here <laughs> like we've thrown a lot of ingredients in the pot let's see what we get out and he got within 25 seconds and i think a lot of people were like wow that's impressive we're closer than we thought right like, mm -hmm. like this is doable like all we have to do is knock off like 26 seconds and we're under um and then of course that's uh uh, well, we had a, we had a different year in uh, eighteen because of um, Kipchoge wanting to go to the world record, and um, that that was never going to be a breaking two year for sure. And he absolutely did that in a, in another generation of the shoe. Um, he he was able to run uh, a stellar time in, uh, in in Berlin, taking over a minute off the previous record. It was quite incredible. Uh, and then obviously uh, it was pretty it was pretty clear with him getting older that nineteen was going to be the chance to do another effort at breaking two because. Uh, 2020 obviously been Olympic year it's, it's different um, and so yeah that was um, I'm not, uh, through this year essentially he ran in London um, relatively easy win for him <laughs> relative to Kipchoge yeah. and then ability to sort of focus on uh, on breaking two again um, so that kind of gives people a little bit of like the chron chron chronology of how it kind of got to where it got to I think it's fair to say that if he if he hadn't succeeded in this attempt, we would have had a problem in this con in this whole concept because next year Olympic year, um, Kipchoge is currently thirty six. So you imagine if you jump two years, he's thirty eight. He's kind of coming off the curve, you know, off the peak. Um, a lot of people had a sense of urgency, like it's got to be nineteen because then it's not Kipchoge potentially, and then who, who on earth is it that's going to have a go at this? Yeah. Because it took so long for him to go through the process of learning how to do it and then refining and refining and refining so no, no, no one else can just jump in and have a crack at it legitimately um, because yeah. during the Breaking 2 project Nike did have three athletes three there runners, wasn't a, yeah. it wasn't a guarantee that Kipchoge was going to be the guy I mean they may have known yeah. ahead of time but he at least had yeah. three people running and they at least had three people running assuming that um, uh, I can't remember the gentleman's name the deceased yeah, yeah. Uh, no, um, Tedesi, Tedesi yeah. who who was a better half marathoner, and and on paper right. it looked like he was more economical and and all the rest. That's um, right. But only through a half marathon or or you know twenty five k or thirty k. Yeah. And then the yeah, wheels yeah. fell off. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and for people that don't know, those three athletes were primarily firstly they're primarily selected for their for their talent, their physiological ability, what they've demonstrated in races that and and everything like that. You know, are they peaking that kind of thing. Um, secondarily, they were selected out of the larger group uh, because uh, they were willing to go through the process. Um, because you've got to accept being a guinea pig in this process for an unknown length of time. You might have to sacrifice some other races that you would normally want to go and do. Mm -hmm. um, you know. So Nike had to compensate them for that because they mm -hmm. would traditionally make appearance fees and yeah. potentially make 
six plus figures for yeah. winning uh yeah a world major or something like that and it was very um, clever very clever by the by the group this is like brad wilkins's group that was in a circle group um very very smart to select those three runners firstly yes as i said they're all um very very talented all willing to go through the process with nike um and there were three different runners and that's very clever scientifically mm -hmm. no point in having three runners that are identical clones of each other three kipchoges because mm -hmm. you don't learn as much mm -hmm. when you've got three runners that all have their own different ways of doing things you mm -hmm. learn way more and um ultimately we all kind of knew kipchoge is the one that's actually going to stick this out and go closer to two hours or break two hours mm -hmm. but nike were brilliant because they got value of information from the other two like you say Tedesse um had some better physiology numbers measured um, and great half marathon runner. So you learn something from him. Nowhere, nowhere near as good running form as Kipchoge. But probably um, closer to like a, a, a Bekele in yes. terms of that shorter distance. So the assumption mm -hmm. is always if they're better, if you're better at a shorter distance, it's going to translate yeah. to the longer distances, which yeah. isn't always the case. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, on a non-East African uh, level, uh, Ritz is, yeah. is like that. He, right. He's the man through half marathon right. or, or even Ryan Hall, you know, very few non-east africans can touch those guys yeah through half but uh you get to a marathon and there are guys that they can't break an hour that will beat them by two to four minutes in a marathon you know and so it, it's not yeah. necessarily the same and that was really really games. smart by nike and then you had to see so he's a younger guy um you know nowhere near as much experience uh, generally in his career um but that kind of rawness adds something else you want to measure that too and um you know, obviously they dropped they kind of dropped out in that kind of reverse order you also had three people from three different countries as well so there's cultural stuff too you've got eritrea yeah. you've got ethiopia you've got kenya yeah. um so nike very very smart there to like learn as much as you possibly can you kind of know kipchoge is the one that's going to really do this and take it forward but you'll but you the other two give you so much information and i loved that i, I really love breaking too because it wasn't uh, being a bit of a purist scientist it wasn't so much about the marketing it really had obvious elements of scientific experimentation about it and um and i'm totally biased so i i love that i think that's fantastic and um uh but yeah obviously yeah um yeah kipchoge uh you know took it on the other we didn't see the other two then after after that um whereas yeah we got to uh um we get to 159 and a lot of these elements have now been refined super super refined um definitely well, I should also explain at this point. We had a great conversation with Alex. Was that episode uh, four? I believe four. Yeah, something? four. So, four yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant uh, chat with him. Um, and for people who haven't listened to that episode, Alex is um, is a, is a running shoe researcher for um, for VF Corporation, who owns some key brands. And um, it was at the same time that we had a, a a couple of conferences happen here in this part of the world. And the first one was a a key conference, a footwear biomechanics conference. Um, where Nike, um, it was Matt Nurse from Nike, gave a, a key keynote presentation at the end on the last day. And um, what that really alluded to was something um, some of us kind of tapped in already knew about. You know, Nike were collecting huge amounts of data. And um, and part of that is the, is the, the technology that I uh, help with, that you use. Uh, Runscribe, we talked about it before. They had other technologies as well, uh, measuring huge, huge amounts of data. And um, that data was has been used um, to create models uh, where you think you can start to predict stuff from the model. And um, I can't remember. I mean, we, definitely, it was a hundred sets of uh, 
for sure, 100 sets of uh, run scribes that Nike took and, and distributed around different people. And that was just like the gate analysis part. But the, the models are really key. In that presentation, uh, what Matt was talking about was that their model, when Kipchoge went now to run the world record in Berlin, uh, 2018, uh, they were able to predict with hyper, hyper accuracy what he was likely to run in that marathon because they felt they had understanding of all the variables. Assuming Kipchoge turns up without stomach cramps or without like sickness, if he runs to prediction, they know all the other variables or think they do, model it, and they apparently got extremely close to, to the time that he actually ran. Um, so they can pat themselves on the back, that's cool. So they've got a model that appears to work at least once. Um, and that leads us on to 159. Again, Nike were able to refine and apply that model again. Um, and it, I found it really interesting because in the build-up where I was talking to people, uh, key people, great confidence before. Like there was Nobody was sort of saying, okay, Kipchoge might or might... I was saying he might or might not do this. Other people, everyone else said he's going to do it. Like, <laughs> you know, almost guaranteed he's going to do it. And some of that confidence actually came from that understanding, having collected so much data over the years, having built and refined the model of what was happening. Um, I found that really interesting. Um, and clearly uh, it informs things like, you know, how fast you're going to drive the pace car in 159, for example. And, um, uh, you know, because you, you don't want to burn the person out in 30Ks, right? <laughs> and, there were people that were using similar data yes. or maybe the same data yep. um, to also design footwear. And that, that, was a, that was a huge announcement that um, was just kind of, it was a bomb that was dropped like as as he lined up kind of thing. Everyone, oh, yeah. and I, do you think this is an appropriate time to start talking shoes? Or, yeah, or, I, mean, I, I mean, I close it out by saying um, uh, on a personal level, uh, before we get into the shoe thing, um, like like you said at the start, I'm a huge fan of Kipchoge. You know, I've been, I've been lucky enough to sort of like chat with the guy in his, in his hometown and um and he was really interested you know like when we chatted he was like hey can you come to like can you come to the camp and like and show me how this stuff works because he's a very intellectual guy you know he really wants to learn about how things work and yeah and he he said to me like hey can you come on like thursday to the camp and like and show me like what this stuff does and like show me some data and teach me how it works um the coaching staff almost had heart attacks at that point you know because they, they don't they want to control what he what he sees and what he knows you know and yeah, they're, 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 they're like, Wah! keep it simple <laughs> like this. But um, amazing, amazing guy, huge, massive role model. And what one of the things that I saw in Breaking 2 and then saw in 159, which I think if anyone listening to this, that you can take out of this, and I, I, this is beyond dispute, I think, is he is an absolute role model for any runner in, in mindset and mind control. Amazing at being able to turn up on the day and execute. Mm -hmm. And his ability to get into this kind of flow state um, you know, bra uh, mindset, brain state it is insanely good. His ability to stay concentrated and relaxed during that two hours in 159. But he could also accept, if anyone listens to this actually, you might have seen that there were guys on bikes. <laughs> what are they all about? First guy on the bike is a guy called Valentine. Valentine on that front bike is his manager and his agent, basically, his form of communication for most things. Second guy on the bike is behind him is a guy called Brett. Brett's the data scientist for Nike. He kind of works essentially in a in sort of parallel to, to the work I do. And um, you might have seen during the 159, there were two or three occasions when Valentine would draw up 
and have a chat with Kipchoge and give him some instructions about what to do. And Kipchoge had the presence of mind to just look across, accept the instructions, give something back, and then boom, back into concentration again. That's incredibly hard to do, especially when you're under pressure at your limit. And what we're talking about there is like, from a kind of, you know, psychology perspective, I mean, the psychologist should be all over this stuff. I mean, they should be studying this, this, this footage to death because he naturally has what psychologists are trying to work with all the time, which is his ability to drop in and out of flow state and then hold it. I mean, he can hold it for two hours straight um, and be hyper-efficient neuroscientifically which, and psychologically, which then makes you hyper-efficient physically as well. Absolutely incredible. One st one time, like 30 minutes from the end, which is the critical period, that 30 minutes, I didn't even really watch the first one and a half hours because I knew it was going to be on target. It's the last half hour is where he's going to do it or not do it, right? If you looked at breaking two, the last half hour is where he dropped off the curve and couldn't hold. And so I was really watching intently that last half an hour. You know, does he fade? Does he do whatever? He actually had the presence of mind when the, when two of the paces came in in front of him too slowly to actually push one of them in the back and put him into position. And this is at the human limit of like what anyone's ever run. <laughs> that, I, I don't remember the last time I've run one mile at the same pace that he ran for all 26.2 actually and, he, and then a, he accelerated and and yeah. i i make a portion of my income as a runner and yeah. I, yeah. Uh, and I and i'm actually training for a marathon and i yeah. i really don't remember the last time i went out and ran a 434 mile like yeah. in training for one mile <laughs> yeah and yeah. and uh again i'm not a miler yeah um, i but uh and those he no, no exactly <laughs> uh, but i mean even even when I was training for five k, ten k's, it's not like I went out and ran a bunch of repeats at that at that pace. That that was close to my limit. That that's about what I could run in high school, um, like all out yeah. for one mile. And uh, yeah. I got a little bit faster, but haven't haven't even tested that that realm for about two decades. So um, can't imagine uh, doing that. And then, like yeah. you said, having the presence of mind to to adjust on the fly. Um, yeah, yeah, there were some commentators even. Even um, Mohamed, who, yes. who we mentioned again in episode seven, he he wasn't pacing, um, but he he commented that you know he figured he could probably have hung for about a half a marathon. Yeah, this is this is one of the best in the world. This was a medalist in the ten k. <laughs> this is a thirteen minute five k. Yeah, yeah, sub thirteen minute five k. You know, he's yeah. the one who paced his team to that sub the, the, the to Woody to run that sub thirteen and the other two to run thirteen, and he he just dropped off with a lap to go and he did it while sick. And uh, he's he's Canada's best and most decorated um, current distance runner, um, and uh, at least on the track. And and his teammates again, Lopez and um, and Matt were part of the pace group. And so you know he was asked, "What could you have done?" And he's like, "Yeah, you know, maybe maybe a half at that pace." And and we're talking one of the fittest people on earth, not just on this continent, but one of the fittest people on earth. Didn't think he could have hung for longer than a half marathon yet. Yeah. Uh, Kipchoge did that again. While yeah. yes, there were a lot of elements that were controlled, but mm. at the same time, yeah. he 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 was the ultimate one in control yeah. in terms of he could control. The you can have you can have all of those elements. It doesn't matter if Kipchoge doesn't come a hundred percent on yeah. that day on that morning. Yeah. And his ability to do it race after race is unreal. And we spoke in episode two about you know my work out there and what I saw what I've seen in Kenya out there with his team and his group. Um, he does the same thing in training. You know, he just doesn't break out of like folks focus and flow state in hard training workouts. He never breaks form, even on the last repeat, whether it's a 1000 or a 1200 or whatever the repeat is, he still is still holding pace 57 second laps or whatever it is at altitude. 
just doesn't break. He's the one guy in the group you can pick him out immediately, no matter what he's wearing, because he's the one guy that never breaks form and has beautiful form all the way to the end. Absolutely something else. And the other thing I'll just touch on real quick before we move on is, um, and Patrick Sang has, has said this, and he's and he's not, Patrick isn't being um, unusually sort of um, altruistic or anything at all. He's, he's been totally honest, because I've seen it with my own eyes. Kipchoge mostly controls his own training. We didn't really talk about that too much in, in, in episode two. Um, Patrick's his coach, but Patrick has like 20 plus other runners to look after in a session. He cannot look after them and look after Kipchoge as well with like his brain on, in two places. So mostly looking after the others. And in fact, nowadays he's looking at the runners who are coming through, the young guys, like who are going to be the next generation. He's, he's caring about them, mainly because he doesn't have to look after Kipchoge because Kipchoge knows what to do. And from very, very early on, when Kipchoge came to Patrick and asked to join his group and asked for a training plan from, from Patrick, Patrick was like, yeah, okay, sure. But quite early on, like there wasn't many years down the road before Patrick was like, I'm not giving you any more training plans because you know what to do. Like you, I'm not coaching you anymore. You're coaching yourself. I'm just here as the guy on the side of the track. And absolutely that is true today. Um, for anyone listening here that thinks that it's a coach relationship where the coach is like instructing him, that's not true at all. Uh, Patrick is more of a father figure and a guide figure mm -hmm. um, about making decisions. In the workouts, it is basically Kipchoge, Elliot, I should say, doing his thing. He knows what to do. No one really interferes. Let him get on with it. If he wants paces, give him paces in the workout. Cool. Um, and uh, I think people maybe don't know that or quite realize that when you look at 159, how much was actually Kipchoge himself in the training? Mm -hmm. Okay, we, we ignore all the other stuff, you know, like the, the, the laser markers on the ground and the shoes and everything. But in the training, mostly he's in control of that himself and knows what to do. Quite incredible. I mean, I just, we've seen athletes out there with more physiological talent like Bekele, but in terms of his approach and mindset and mentality, there's just no one touching him in the world of running. It, it's quite an incredible inspiration and role model to see. I remember seeing some of Barry Fudge's data um, measured from Bekele years ago from a workout that was done at 3,000 metres on a, a, a track in, um, uh, in Ethiopia. Incredible data. It included heart rates, low heart rates for a really hard track workout <laughs> at 3,000 metres. No question, he's more physiologically talented than, um, than, than uh, Kipchoge. But, but Kipchoge just has, as we saw in 159, he... He's just insanely good, at, like psychologically, before the event, during the event. It's, it's, it's quite incredible. Um, as, as you were mentioning, um, kind of his, his role, that collaborative coach-athlete role that they play, uh, and, and now it's as much of a mentor uh, role as it is like a coach yeah. role. Um, I try and mention this to the athletes that I work with. Um, I have been working with some athletes for for several years um two of whom are now coaches with me at peak run performance and we've mentioned eric before um i'll mention manu i actually just chatted with her and we recorded that conversation um but that's essentially what that relationship has become with them as well and the reason that they are now coaches with me is because um to a certain extent, I, I feel like I've taught them everything that I know. Uh, we've reached my ceiling, um, at least in terms of general principles of how to design training and things like that. And ultimately, it, it's about them listening to their bodies and adjusting the training um, or the, the, the general principles around training 
to whatever the goal event is that they're training for and or their the rest of their life schedule you know what's going on with their partner what's going on with their the, their other work and, and things like that and um and that really is my goal as a coach i you and I both try to provide, even this podcast, we try to provide as much information, Mm. um, um, hopefully peer reviewed and and actually factual, not just pure opinion, Mm. uh, information so that people can make informed decisions. Mm. And it's not that I don't like working with people long-term. I love that I have the relationship that I do with, with Eric and with Mm. Manu. I consider them not just athletes of mine, but but partners and, and, and friends. Um, I don't necessarily see myself as a mentor to them, um, but colleagues. Um, but there are still athletes, again, that I mentioned that I worked with when they were high school students. They still reach out to me and, and sometimes ask, you know, hey, I'm going to make this transition to, to the marathon or I have a question about shoes. I mean, these are people that, that have performed better than I ever did as an athlete and are still performing yeah. better than I ever have. Yeah. And, and they still, uh, there's maybe they just do it to make me feel good, but you know, I feel good that they feel like they can still trust me Mm -hmm. all these years later. And, um, we have that relationship, but I, I don't necessarily send them a training plan every week. Um, but I can, I can give them my feedback and, um, but, but as a coach in the same way that a a parent feels, you and I are both parents. When we see our kids, um, have the confidence to do something on their own, they've, they've learned both through our own guidance, but then they've also learned through their own experience. Hey, I can do this. That's ultimately what you want them to be able to do on race day. Yeah. Yeah. Because Patrick wasn't even on the bike, you know, Patrick wasn't there, um, telling him what to do every step of the way. And, and I get the impression that Valentin wasn't either, you know, he, 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 he was selective about what he said because he knew that everything that was said would require a response or at least would need to be processed. And so he wasn't going to be yapping in his ear the whole time. Um, and in the same way, the goal of us as coaches, especially the way that we work as coaches remotely is to, is to help our athletes, uh, not need us. (laughs) Yeah. And that's really interesting. I mean, obviously there's different philosophies of coaching out there, but I, I do really like what you're talking about and I subscribe to the same uh, concept myself. And I remember talking about, um, I mean, I've heard people like Joe B. Hill and also even um, Alva Mayo, who's a you know, re- really famous uh, coach, say exactly the same things. Um, I remember having, you know, with a, a buddy of mine, uh, John Brown, you know, great marathon runner of his time and great coach as well, talking about, um, you know, we used to have coffee chats about uh, you know, his past, but also coaching Simon Whitford, for example, to uh, Olympic gold in 2000. And, you know, John was just like, he just put his hands up and said, you know, you know, I did my job as a coach, but mostly it was just Simon was just an animal. <laughs> you didn't really have to coach him very much. Sometimes I mean, you have to pull back on the reins. Yeah. You know, that's that's yeah. a, a lot of times that's what I feel like with the really ambitious athletes that I work with. Is yeah. like my only job is to try and keep them healthy. You know, yeah, like pull keep, them back. Yeah, yeah, just kind of like make sure they stay roughly on the within the bounds of the of the track of the path they're going on. And I remember thinking, I remember listening to Patrick as we were talking on the side of a track session, and and kind of thinking. This sounds like what this sounds like kind of what exactly what John used to tell me about coaching um, uh, Simon Whitfield. You know, like um, that you don't really have to meddle with much. You know, the person just has the motivation; they know what to do, and you're just kind of like guiding them. You know, just keep them on the track, kind of thing, and they'll they'll figure it out. Like. Yeah, there, there really aren't any secret workouts. And you mentioned in in episode two when we were talking about group training and especially and in running, 
the simplicity of the training and, and actually mm-hmm. Steve Magnus and, and several others, I think sweat science and, um, uh, not sweat science, uh, sweat elite. Is that what it was? Yeah. Oh, they, yeah when yeah, they yeah, published yeah. some right. of Kipchoge's training and, and just said, look yeah. how simple it is. It's, it's the same thing week after week after week after week. And I think there's something to be said for that. I think people think that you need, <laughs> like you mentioned, yeah. a, a new workout every week to keep you stimulated and stuff like that. And, um, yeah if you're working all the systems and, and, and there's a purpose or you're mm. aware of the objectives of each, of each session yeah. and, and the overall purpose, um, it doesn't have to be overly complicated. It, we don't have yeah. to try and mimic or copy Kipchoge's training uh, all the way. Yeah. And, and I think that can be a problem, but I, but at the same time, if you've got the general principles and it is tailored to the individual, mm. uh, that's what works, but, but over time an individual learns what works for them yeah. you know? and, and then they'll tweak things. Uh, I, I'm currently doing things differently than I have in my last at least two or three years of, of buildups mm. in part because I actually feel healthy enough to, to add a little bit of speed. Uh, whereas a lot of times I've just had to rely on the stamina and, um, yeah. but you know, you may notice that I'm, I've got a scratchy throat right now. I've been under the weather for the last couple weeks and, and oh, it's so not, it's not because you've just been like talking for like hours and hours straight <laughs> uh i have been doing that as well but um but some of that is uh I, i've had to adjust my training as far as that goes and, and just but just having that confidence that i'm going to be okay I've, I've done this before um i don't need all those special workouts to to get yeah. me where i need to be what i need to do is just do what i need to do <laughs> to get yeah. to the line healthy. and it's really impossible and, with like for a coach to know you go down a rabbit hole like trying to second guess everything that's happening with an athlete mm-hmm. and you know sort of hovering around them all the time and trying to do everything for them and um maybe getting mixed signals or you know mixed kind of feedback from them and uh and it's never going to be ultimately it will never be as successful as someone coming along a runner coming along with their own motivation and drive mm-hmm that you give the tools and they take it forward. Like yeah. that's always going to be more successful. And I've, well, certainly I've seen it that way. Um, or at least they provide you with enough feedback that you can, not just what you can see empirically, but that they, they can anecdotally provide mm-hmm. <laughs> some substance to like, Hey, maybe this is why these paces were off or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, one other example that I think was, is a really good example and someone that people might recognize um, on the lady side, uh, Des Linden. Yeah, she was right. with the Hansons for 12 years. Mm. And I, I remember Keith and Kevin saying that, you know, she didn't even begin to like really see the, the, the real results for at least two years. And it was closer to six years before she became like an actual name and, and a contender on the world level. Mm. Um, but after 12 years, she parted ways with them. And, and some people felt like, Oh, you know, it was because of this or that or whatever. And they both, it was, I don't feel like it was just a political thing to say. It was kind of like they were a developmental group. They did, I mean, she had done the same buildup twice a year for 12 years. Mm. She might have needed a little bit different stimulus or they had kind of reached a ceiling. And at the same time, kind of like you mentioned with, with Kipchoge, they had younger athletes that they were trying to develop and and there was only so much attention they could give to her. She was doing a lot on her own anyway. And so she kind of just wanted to get a second opinion. Um, but she was ultimately going to be the one making most of the decisions based on that 12 years of experience with mm. two of the best least american marathon coaches uh if not some of the best in the world is developing marathoners um but she she needed a slightly different stimulus and a slightly different set of eyes but but it was in part because she had kind of 
beaten a dead horse um, for 12 years. Like, like she yeah. had reached her, her max. She, she won Boston yeah. um, with that system. Yeah. And, uh, and it was essentially the same system, the same build year after year after year, maybe a little bit more volume here or there, a little bit less, maybe throw in a track season here or there. But for the most part, it was mm. two marathons a year. <laughs> this is the system. Um, yeah. This is the plan. And, um, and I think there's a lot to be said for trusting that process, trusting that long-term process, that, that long-term development. And yeah. I think that's part of what we see with, with Patrick and with, with Elliot yeah. is that they, that long-term trust that this guy's got my best interest. I know that guy's not going to do anything too foolish or, or yeah. I'll be able to catch it, it before it nip it in the bud before. Cause kind happens. of what's interesting about it for me, like is, um, uh, before we get onto kind of the hot topic, uh, in that, in the la- in the last few years, um, with Elliot having so much control over his own training, and he is basically when you, when you go and you know work with the group and see the group, he's basically kind of the patriarch of the group. I mean, everyone just follows him basically. You know, especially the younger guys in the group, they're all watching him. They're all like, some of them like even like copy his form. They're like, yeah, I've seen that he kind of does this with his feet. I'm going to start doing like he he's that much of an influence on the on the group around him. But what's amazing is is how incredibly like stable and anchored he is mentally, because you could think to yourself. If you if you if the coach is kind of a little bit hands off, you're spending a lot of time with with the with the other guys, you know Kipchoge could have kind of got on the internet, done some research, and started bouncing around the place, right? You know, like oh, I'm going to try this, you know, and gone down this little avenue, and tweaking his training, and then oh that didn't work, and then go down this, and I've seen that happen before. You've probably seen that happen before, right? Um, and yet he didn't do that. He said he he stuck. He totally stayed with the with the trust in the process, and realised as a lot of Kenyans do, you know, it's about putting the work in and you can keep their workouts pretty straightforward. Um, generally have the same routine every week, but you're, you're building all the time. It's this incremental build and you're, you're going a bit faster in the workouts and and you're pushing a bit harder, but you're staying within the same general structure. I think that was like super cool because I think other runners, um, maybe a bit more kind of hyperactive type runners or whatever, um, could easily in that time have just started going off on side, side shoots, you know, side, side, so of like oh you know like i've heard about this i'm gonna have a try with this or an experiment with this and um yeah i think there's something there for everyone to learn so yeah in those uh workouts um that, you know, that i was uh, fortunate enough to, to witness in kenya um you know one thing uh that did stand out and you kind of mentioned it as well um already with uh ineos 159 project shoes just kind of appear at the last seconds <laughs> and you were absolutely bang on right it was um it was a tightly held secret, and then uh, and then he appeared on the start line with a different pair of shoes to uh, to everyone else. Um, very similar when I was in when I was out there, you know, like um, uh, normal shoes would be visible to begin with, and then obviously like you come into the kind of the meat of the workout, and Kipchoge would suddenly uh, disappear off to the backpack, <laughs> pull out some other shoes, tie them on very quick, immediately then uh, you know use them put them back in the backpack very quickly afterwards, make sure no one can see them. Um, which then sort of brought about, you know, various various kind of quite hilarious uh, moments around, you know, discussion of whether you can take photographs or video. And, you know, I wanted to take slow motion video for biomechanics purposes. And it's like, okay, long discussion about that. <laughs> but basically what was happening there essentially was um, uh, he, had an, he had an all black shoe, uh, which was a prototype uh, shoe you know, a developmental prototype to what he was going to wear here at 159. And, um, you know, subsequent to, uh, to the 159 event, of course, a lot of, there's been a lot of, uh, talk, a lot of, um, 
uh, topical conversation around uh, around the shoes and um, well, we're basically going to talk about it essentially <laughs> because 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 we want to and we've got information to share. So um, and I think people generally out there are are curious on a, on a, on just a pure curiosity level. Um, but yeah, interesting. Um, I didn't realise at the time. I, you know, obviously, I saw the black shoe. It looked kind of curious and interesting to me. And obviously, everyone, everyone was very protective over it. Um, uh, in terms of like you know talking with, uh, with 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 Nike and trying to swap over some data collection and maybe even like swap some learnings, that was shut down quite quick. <laughs> and um, yeah, that shoe was this was this prototype toward, uh, toward what he was going to wear. And um, clearly, since one fifty nine, um, you know. A lot of information has got out there about the shoe, and it's um, uh, you know some, some some people are obviously like, wow, that's uh, that's super cool. When can I buy that shoe, please? How much is it going to cost? When <laughs> when's it released? And then other people obviously have a different angle and are looking at the shoe and saying, hang on a second here, you know, what's the shoe doing exactly? And um, uh, let's 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 back up a second here and ha how much of Kichogo's time is to do with the shoe? That's basically the question that every that's revolving around, putting everyone's heads in a spin right now. Um, and a lot of lot of viewpoints are, are sort of uh, coming to the fore on social media and, and the internet. Um, first things first, of course, uh, we want to get back to some of the basic fundamentals and the facts um, about what we're talking about. I mentioned before about the idea during 2016 that um, that Nike were basically working with a kind of um, whatever you want to call. It. I call them like Frankenstein prototypes because you basically just like jamming bits on a shoe. Uh, and that was the uh, that was the, the basis. The fundamental basis was um, uh, were these white uh, Nike Zoom Streak threes, but the the sole unit was something uh, newly developed, and um, and various runners in uh, Oregon were, were obviously playing around with these. When did you see these? Sir? Uh, the first that I saw this shoe would have been in like a June July time two thousand and sixteen. Okay. Uh, that was on the Nike campus, mm -hmm. and um, uh, the upper. The upper was was um, a completely normal upper from a Nike Zoom Streak that existed in the, at that time. Uh, Nike were actually that was just before Nike. No, let me get this right. So they were releasing an update to the Zoom Streak at that time, but they had this parallel project going on for this completely different shoe, of course. And um, I can't remember some of the runners that were wearing it. Um, there were some Bowman Track Club runners that were using skinny pigs. Yeah, I, I think. Um... I think they were worn in the twenty sixteen Olympic trials, yes. and that was the first time. There was a dis an accusation. Right. Um, so, yes. so Kara Goucher placed fourth, no longer a Nike athlete at the time. She was part of the Oregon project, was then running for Skechers. Yep. Placed fourth, top mm. three at the Olympic trials. And that was in LA, wasn't it? Yeah, yes. in the heat. In the heat, yeah. That's and, right, yeah. Uh, and Shalane, actually, who just announced her that's retirement, right. she essentially passed out. I mean, she, she was dead to rights almost. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was she really struggled the last little bit yep. and Amy Craig, a teammate tried to carry her as far as she could. And then eventually kind of had to go and, and won. But, uh, the, it, the shoes were overshadowed mm. <laughs> because of kind of the high yeah. drama nature. Not that Shalane was being dramatic, but that yeah. it was so hot and people were complaining about the heat and that the water mm. bottles weren't placed where they should have been. And I the organization, that, yeah. it was a big fiasco there. And so, uh, what could have been an opportunity to have this same discussion that we're having now about the shoes. Yeah. Um, Kara did mention it and mm. she said, you know, it, those weren't, those weren't what 
I was wearing and those no one else had access to that type of footwear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no one was nothing had really been published about what they were. Yeah. But they looked like, you know, moon shoes. And and, and, <laughs> yeah. and at the time IAAF did have a, a stricter standard. Mm. Um as far as what could and couldn't be, what, not necessarily stack height or anything like that, but mm. um, that shoes weren't meant to uh, give an unfair advantage, and right. that they sh- they needed to be available to all. So sorry. Right. That, no, uh, no, no, absolutely. I was, I, was, yeah. uh, I, I knew you had a better wording for the um, <laughs> for, for the for the rule than I did there. Um, yeah, um, that's right. That's right. It was in uh, yeah January two thousand and sixteen, of course. And that those were some of those early prototypes um, that were being thrown in, and. Um, yeah, essentially, and then they, there was basically a kind of um, a sort of parallel th- development path going on with the, with the Zoom Streak, which got developed to the Zoom Streak Six, and then part elements of that were crossing over into this prototype shoe, and then of course we saw in Rio in um, in summer sixteen, then um, certain Nike athletes had access to um, what was not commercially available, but it was produced on a, it was produced on a larger scale at that point. Um, so people like uh, like Galen Rupp, for example, like Kipchoge had had it in the Olympic marathon there. Um, so um, and then essentially that became uh, as we as we swept into 2017, that became the what we call now today the four percent shoe. At the uh, sort of mid to end of uh, 2016, this study was done, um, and. Uh, guy called Roger Cram supervised the study um, another guy who Gamma was like kind of like lead scientist on the study I think about five or six people involved in total and that study is kind of interesting because that led to why it was called the four percent shoe um, just to paraphrase what happened there uh, 18 people were were tested um, they were selected on the basis that um, they had they were within the the performance range required because we're essentially just looking at elite runners at this point um what I find, we'll get onto this in a second because I find it really interesting because there was not a lot of information published around exactly the profiles of those 18 people. But anyway, we know they fit within this uh, particular uh, performance um, range. And then they were run at three different speeds and um, they were compared in the prototype shoe versus um, the Nike Zoom Street 3 and the Adios uh, Boost from uh, Adidas. And uh, what was found in the study and then later published was that. Um, by measuring um, through gas analysis, essentially how much oxygen you're pulling out of the air and, and, and putting into the bloodstream, uh, that these runners were getting on average about a 4% imp- uh, gain or um, improvement of advantage, whatever you want to call it, in running economy. So they're not having to use as much oxygen to run at the same um, um, given speed. And um, it's postulated, kind of, well, tentatively sort of suggested in the, uh, uh, the write-up of this study that... Um, if you converted that with some fudge factors into what that might mean in a marathon, in a race, in terms of performance advantage, it could be something around, say, 3.4%. Was you know, it was ballpark number. It's not like super accurate science, but um, which really kind of yeah piqued people's interest and got some eyebrows raised. And that was essentially um, why it was called the four percent shoe because of this average of four percent running economy improvement. I find it really intriguing because in the study they actually found a range that went up to six percent. So at least one, if not more, of the people in the study actually ex- experienced up to a six percent improvement that's getting really significant now like um <laughs> uh, we're talking about taking minutes off a marathon time if you're something like a 210 or 220 operator um so that created anyway the uh, that's what it's called the four percent shoe the four percent shoe was essentially what was um used by um kipchoge in breaking two in um uh, may 2017 he had an elite version of it but it was um it was pretty similar to what was released then as, as the four percent shoe if you had the money to buy the full kitchen sink shoe and then obviously that's gone through its various iterations we got to the uh 
Vaporfly 4% being, um, not 4%, sorry, the next percent being released uh, earlier this year. Um, of course, Kipchoge had prototypes of that well before. <laughs> By the time they were looking at launching and releasing that as a commercial shoe, Kipchoge obviously was already collecting the data in what was going to become this new Alphafly shoe. Um, so in the Ineos 159, Kipchoge was wearing the Alphafly or what they're... That's right. It hasn't been officially named the Alphafly yet, but that's yeah. what people are calling it. Yes. Um, yeah. He was wearing the Alphafly with the with like the Air Max pockets right. <laughs> in the forefoot. <laughs> like, yeah. It totally brings you back to... To, to the old days of Nike. I know, um, it feels like 1990s, <laughs> didn't it? <laughs> and, uh, and, and all of his pacers were wearing the hot pink next percent. Next percent, yeah. yeah. So, so just for people out there, I know a lot of people have probably already read about this on Twitter or whatever it is, but just to kind of crystallize what we're talking about here, today we have this uh, Vaporfly, um, uh, Vapor, yeah, Vaporfly uh, next percent shoe, which anyone can buy off the internet right now. Um, and the difference ultimately, what we're talking about, that shoe has the PVAX foam, um, pretty thick midsole, and um, has a carbon plate in between the two sections of the foam. Um, and that whole system, as we talked about in Alex's podcast, is tuned, highly tuned, um, firstly to create stiffness under the foot, but then to react off the ground, deform, release, and give propulsive advantage to the runner. Absolutely. And it's essentially mostly designed because of the way the data was collected, it's mostly really designed around forefoot running. Mm -hmm. um, so you may not get the same response if you're not a forefoot runner. Um, Kipchoge, by the way, barely touches the ground ever with his heels. <laughs> I mean, he is like a very, very forefoot runner. Um, and then what we're talking about here in uh, 159, this, this shoe that's got so much attention in the last <laughs> two weeks, is, is a major change. I'm not going to say it's a micro change. It's a substantial change from what is available to buy on the website today. So we um, we know it has more than one carbon plate in it. It's speculated that it has potentially, three. some people have said three <laughs> or four carbon plates in it. Um, so let's just call it a stack of multiple carbon plates. Uh, same PVAX foam. Um, it, I don't know of it being having been adapted in the in the polymer uh, makeup and formula. A little bit more stack height uh, in the midsole, and then critically, <laughs> the addition of of more technology underneath the forefoot specifically, uh, what appears to be four pods, uh, people call them pods, but they look like, yeah, Air Max units from the past. And they've got some kind of spring type uh, physical mechanism, uh, vertical like struts, if you like, within the pods that clearly are designed to act like micro springs. And hopefully uh, a little bit more effective than the Nike shocks. Yeah, because yeah. they weren't effective. <laughs> I remember in the 90s, mine used to just deflate and then make a squeaking noise. <laughs> I used to walk around town yeah. with a squeak noise. Exactly. And they'd be like, what is that? And I'd be like, yeah, it's these really expensive shoes. I, I, I spent six months trying to afford and now they, now they make a squeaking noise. Um, yeah. yeah, I grew up where we had, uh, call them goat heads, but they're burrs or, or stickers. And yeah, you, you basically couldn't wear any Nike. Most of the technology of that era, not just Nike, but like the Asics gels and everything <laughs> yeah. had something that could pop. And so it was like, yep. do we just have something yep. with foam and uh, an outsole, please? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just keep it simple. Um, Sorry, but yeah, yeah. Um, and a lot of this kind of, firstly, we saw the shoe just suddenly appear, obviously, like at the actual event itself. Um, but actually, the shoe... If you were incredibly, incredibly geeky and down with everything that was going on, you would have actually potentially known about the shoe back in November 2018. And the reason for that was because uh, Nike knew what they were onto here, something quite big. So they actually filed 
um, a patent application. And um, in the US, of course, because it's the market, it's the biggest market, so you want to file that patent application there. And in the US is where you've got, you know, you've got all kinds of issues with lawyers anyway, and people trying to copy your stuff and then patent over the top of you and all that kind of crap. Um, anyway, so, um, and I've seen that in the technology world, it's like patenting, it's just like, it's, oh, it's a headache, it's a disaster. Anyway, so they got in there early, knew what they were dealing with, and, um, and file this patent. And what that means is, is the patent office in the US then, then holds that application and you can actually go in and you can search for it and you can find that patent application and find the details of it. Uh, Nike obviously quite smart. I mean, they didn't call the patent application uh, 159 shoe. You know, they, uh, they gave it a, a name that was descriptive enough, but people would find it hard to search on it. Uh, but some, one or two people, uh, you know, some people out there kind of uh, stumbled across it. And what it was showing was it was showing a concept not the specific shoe because they didn't know how they're going to refine it, but they showed the concept of how the sole unit would work. And it clearly is the same concept that came to 159. And it was clearly the same concept that Kipchoge was wearing earlier on this year as that black shoe. So, um, so you know, that if you read into that patent application, if you're that, if you're that into it, you know, that kind of confirms some of the stuff we just talked about, about what the makeup of the shoe is. Um, and so, yeah, so for the people, so in terms of addressing that kind of like talk that's out there about, about the shoe, that is what he wore. Um, next big question is, is it about the shoes? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. Would he have been able to break two hours without the shoes yeah. or, and then if we continue on that, um, line of questioning, would, um, Bekele have been able to almost best Kipchoge's uh, world record at the marathon um, without the, the next percents. Uh, and then if we continue down that line, would, um, <laughs> would people be able to have done what they've been doing over the last two years? without yeah. the shoes is it just this phenomenon did the, did the dam just break you know is, are, are the floodgates open and and was it was it one of these um just once in a generation moments where people saw what he did in 2016 with breaking two and said hey i'm inspired i'm going to go out and train a little harder or is it the shoes and um and i think if you look at the data it's hard to argue that it's not the shoes. Yeah, because if we go back again to the um, and touch on that that work that was done in uh, sixteen um, in, in the in the US there, uh, I think that study. I mean, Roger Cram is like one of the most sort of respected people around. Um, I, I'm sure that study was had adequate controls in it and was properly conducted and data was properly collected and recorded. Blah blah blah. Averages were calculated correctly. All that kind of stuff. So I think uh, valid study. Uh, it needed more study. It does need more studies, of course, to back stuff up. But um, that's telling us, okay, you can you got this average of like four percent running economy improvement in that study, up to a maximum of six, because at least one person has got a six percent improvement. Mm -hmm. um, and that's again, that's that's with the original. That's with the original 4%. prototype. That wasn't even the four percent that was released to the, yeah, uh, to, the to the world. Public, so yeah, yeah, it was a prototype, and it still had elements of the Nike Zoom Streak Three in that prototype. Mm -hmm. And um, and so then, absolutely, Nike are collecting a lot of data. They're refining the shoe. So the 4% that came out uh, a year later was refined beyond that study shoe. Then we've gone to the Vaporfly four, uh, next percent, uh, which initially I thought um, didn't look like much of an update from the, four, from the original 4%. Mm -hmm. But that's not what I'm seeing in the data because I've now collected a whole bunch of data 
um, gait data, um, kinetic data um, about how to do with propulsion. And it's looking like the Vaporfly uh, next percent does give quite a significant uh, improvement from the 4%. Well, and they, and they um, are a little bit different if we talk right. about the stack heights. So the, uh -huh. the Vaporfly is 4%. I knew you got some numbers for me. <laughs> um, it's an average of about a 4% uh, increase or improved running economy. The next percent is closer to 5 and the Alpha Fly is closer to 6% or more. Right. <laughs> so with someone like Kipchoge, who they were designed specifically for, he may be getting 8 back yeah, you know yeah. and so even though he's a sub two hour marathoner or right there at that threshold that's still minutes we're not talking yes, like five seconds or 30 seconds we're talking like three to four minutes potentially yeah. um so when people wonder how he was able to drop his pacers and run and jump his and you know hug his wife and hug his coaches and it looks like he probably could have continued it, it might have been because he could have he could have <laughs> <laughs> uh, because it didn't require as much effort as it may have required when he ran in Berlin and mm -hmm. um, with the uh, the streaks. Yeah. Um, height, stack height. Some people don't know or care what that is. Um, my wife Amy won't listen to this podcast because usually if I want her brain to shut off and her eyes to glaze over, I start talking about stack height and uh, or shoes in general. But um, stack height is is the, the height of of the midsole. And so uh, in the original Vaporflies or, or those that were publicly available, those were 31 millimeters. The next percent's 36 millimeters. It's estimated that the Alpha Flies are 40 to 41 millimeters. So yep. each one of them has gotten incrementally, incrementally higher yeah. and, and that has been intentional because it has led to greater economy, at least yeah. for those who have had access to them and been tested. So again, there, there yeah. does need to be more research on this. Yeah. But what we're seeing is not just in that um, that metabolic testing of efficiency. Yeah. We're seeing times dropping, the, yes. the top 10 best times ever run in the marathon, yeah. at least for men. I haven't actually, there hasn't been as much discussion about the women's top times. Mm. Um, and, and I actually, I can say not for women, mm. um, because the world record was just broken and we'll get to that in a pair of next percents. Um, but, uh, but the top 10 best times of all time yeah. in the marathon that are ratified top 10 times yep. um all of those have been run in these newer vapor fly iterations yeah yep. and and in in sanctioned races um absolutely and and those <laughs> this isn't just a phenomenon or or just a, a fluke or just mm. that all of a sudden training has improved um yeah it we can even say with the women's world record yep. that time hadn't dropped for 16 years no one had even yeah. touched it no one had been in within no. minutes of it absolutely uh, including the lady who just broke it yes. um yeah for 16 years and so um it there is something to There's do something with the going shoes. on yeah. absolutely 100 and i think uh, i'm glad you brought the numbers because i didn't this is this is why we we, we do a podcast together because um <laughs> because you do way more reading than i do <laughs> no, i listen a lot i listen to a lot of podcasts and listen to a lot of audiobooks i do read a fair bit but i, I listen a lot. um but yeah no you're absolutely right and it's totally totally you know as a pure scientist myself collected probably as much if not more field gate data than anyone else in the world today I'm, i can tell you like these are not crazy numbers these are totally realistic numbers that you're putting out there um it is not off the charts to suggest things like six percent running economy improvement in a shoe that has the diagnostics that we're we're looking at um we know that um, when pbax has been has been tested as a polymer foam 
it's had um, around, approximately speaking, about twice the energy return once deformed, compressed, and then released. Twice the energy return of its nearest competitor, foams. <laughs> so um, it's it's. Uh, it's not it's not far-fetched at all to start suggesting the numbers that you're suggesting um it is a bit of a kind of like there's a lot of fudge factors to how you kind of get from running economy to the race performance advantage mm -hmm. but again i don't think it's unreasonable to take say three quarters like 75 percent of that as your as your performance advantage in a race so if you have four percent running economy you could say three percent in a, in a race performance mm -hmm. and then 3% over say 120 or 130 minutes is several minutes off your time. Oh yeah. Um, no, just a, just basic mathematics. And so we can absolutely say as, as I'm sure other people are sort of saying simultaneously around the world right now, there's no question that it helped him with minutes off his time uh, in Vienna. And there's no question at all that he would not run a sub two time or even really close to a sub two time in a more standard shoe and of course we'll come back to like all the standard shoe i really like the latest version of the zoom streak because it doesn't have all this technology it goes back to being a classic racing shoe it is low to the ground it is lightweight um it has pre it has standard uh <laughs> zoom units and foam in it um it has a plastic bit of plastic in the sole um it's it's kind of going back to your classic racing shoe, and um, I think when we look at like when he ran in he won the Berlin Marathon a few years back, mm -hmm. and classically the insole came out. Do you remember? I don't know if you remember the insole came out the back of the shoe, yeah. right? And that was the Zoom Streak Six that he was he was wearing there. Uh, they just hadn't glued the insole in properly, <laughs> and um, and gave him the shoe like just before the event. But that shoe like typifies to me um, a, a kind of classic racing shoe because um, it focuses on all those all those kind of elements that work in concert with what the runner's already got. Yeah. And doesn't really provide any kind of um, significant uh, additional propulsion as such. It doesn't augment um, the performance. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It does what the rules at least state what they were, were yeah. intended to do. What they were intended. It's intended to protect the feet yes. and enable the body to do what it yes. is naturally yes. able to do, but it, it doesn't Exactly. Uh, it doesn't enable something else yeah it, so, it, yeah it, it, it's not a performance enhancer yes exactly exactly and so i often think when people when people raise the topic with me i think what could, what would kipchoge do if he went back to a zoom street six mm -hmm. like he ran in berlin um years ago with and um i i would struggle to believe that he would get under 201 with the zoom street six okay. in vienna yeah. I, I struggle to believe that mm -hmm. um and i think you know, you can, there's no point in getting like semantic and getting like fussing over exact numbers, but we, that's the kind of ballpark thing like we, we're kind of talking about there. Um, and that's not to take anything away from what he no. has accomplished. No. I, I think because that still makes him the, he's still yeah, the best marathon yeah, in the world. He, he has, he's won all but one marathon he's ever lined up for. Yeah. And, um, and so it's hard to argue with his record. Like you said, it's yeah. it's not just his physiology. It's it's his mindset. You but, see how many runners who are close to where he's at. Bekele, and how many times I think they, a perfect example. How many times they drop out of races? Yeah. Or, they don't or even Ailey Gebersasi. Yeah. The two previous bests, at least, that, yeah. that were projected to be the bests. Yeah. Uh, we even the, saw, the only few uh, that anyone considered would have been capable of yeah. breaking two. We even saw with uh, Kimeto and, uh, you know, 
<laughs> I wouldn't say he was a one-hit wonder because he did write, he did race a bit after the world record, mm-hmm. but a short period, a very short period at the top. Um, Even Wanjiru, yeah. you know, he didn't have yes. a, a great uh, or a very long life or career, but sure. but he certainly was pushing the limits from the yeah. get-go. Um, oh, I think there's a lot of us that would love to see what Wanjiru could have done, could have done in a pair of alpha flies, but <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I it's totally not. It's totally not unreasonable to um, to say, yeah, um, getting near that two hours and even breaking that two hours, um, not possible without serious shoe development and getting away from that kind of um, Adidas 80 Zero or um, uh, Nike Zoom Streak uh, philosophy in, in, into something else. That's clearly uh, absolutely the game changer. Now we've, um, I, I can, I know you're itching like to talk about some of the other stuff that's been going on, like in, in some of the other results. And um, when I mentioned like in the study that they did with the 18 uh, sample size, um, I'd, and I'd really love to know more about the profile of the 18 runners and um, specifically about their anthropometrics. So, you know, how their, their stature and essentially how much body mass they got, how much do they weigh? Because one of the things, as I've been collecting data, um, both uh, with some super elite people on, you know, elsewhere in the world, but also here as well with people um, using the, these Nike products, um, I'm start, I've seen a trend, and it makes logical sense. I mean, it really does logically. The heavier the runner, the more performance advantage comes out of the shoe. Um, obviously, we know the heavier the runner, the more force they apply into the ground, the more ground reaction force they get back out. That means more deformation of the of the material of the midsole, which, if it's resilient enough to immediately comply and come back, is going to give you more um, more advantage as you react off the ground and propel forward. And I'm seeing not a complete data set yet for sure, but I'm seeing trends in in the data so far that point that the heavier the runner, and these are all generally kind of elite level runners, but the heavier, the more advantage they get out of something like the uh, Vaporfly next percent, um, but yeah, I can. I, I know you're kind of like you're itching to like talk about because I mean it, it's been an unprecedented period of the last two months. Yeah, well, it, the last the last two years, I would say. Um, so the for the U.S. Olympic trials and and the U.S. does things a little bit differently than the rest of the world, but uh, for the marathon, which is what these shoes are made for, um, the standard has been for the last couple olympic cycles uh sub 219 is the b standard and for the men and sub 245 for the women i believe the last time around uh and, and really only the top three qualify to represent the u.s on in either side and um and it's rare that you know there's more than a handful of people that are even in the runnings that that would be in the sub 212 range on 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 a berlin type course at least you know like i said <laughs> since since the 70s 70 80s I, since the 80s uh there, there have been a lot more marathon runners in the u.s but a lot few on the at the tip of the spear a lot fewer at the tip of the spear men and women um on the on the men's side almost 200 have hit that sub 219 mark uh and i believe that was before chicago and and i think the previous year fewer than 100 were in 
under that mark. Or the previous the previous Olympiad. Uh, so oh, in 2016, okay. um, almost twice the number of men. Yeah. And then for the women, nearly 400 prior to Chicago have qualified, have, have run sub 245. Wow. And, and many of, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I'm willing to bet that more than half of those times have been run probably i would bet closer to 75 percent of those times have been run in in either a vaporfly or a another brand's prototype of something with the carbon fiber something with a, a mm. p-bax type foam okay. uh, whether that's a hoka a saucony a new mm. balance a sketcher just uh, seen the uh, the asics as well coming out the black, oh yes the black asics yes well, the yeah. so so most of the at least the major players in the in the road running realm mm-hmm. are trying to compete with these these vapor flies um we talked a little bit about alex and some of the work that he did he mm-hmm. he did research he actually compared <laughs> the vapor flies with uh the ultra escalante racers yeah he did some research on those and those are those are uh nike or i'm sorry those are those are ultras flagship marathon racing shoe yeah. and i wore those in the 50k when you gather data um, he, he said, even as, as an employee of the parent company of Altra, if the time came for him to compete himself, he would run in either a Vaporfly or something that he's able to create with the brand <laughs> under the VF flag. Um, that's comparable to that, that gives that t- type of advantage as long as it's legal. Yeah. Um, because there is a clear advantage, uh, based on numerous studies that he's done. Sure. Um, and so he and I are actually... We're working on trying to create a shoe of mm-hmm. some sort, and one of the challenges with non-Nike brands is that they already uh, there's only a limited amount of P-backs available. Right. And and so even if other brands want to compete with Nike, they have to try and get a hold of P-backs, and Nike yeah. already kind of is first in line. Yes. And, and so, it's so you for- can't really compete with that. You can't create. A knockoff, or right. even even a, uh, the same shoe with a different brand, because they yeah. they've got the stranglehold. They have a, the monopoly on the P-backs foam in China, which yeah. is where most shoes are made these days. I was going to say so. as well because it's um, just for people like listening. It's actually a naturally occurring. It's actually it's actually a crop basically that's grown. So you actually have to grow the stuff originally. <laughs> so yeah. limited supply. It's that it's that whole supply and demand thing. But but if if we're into fair sport. And we don't want one brand to have a monopoly or or one team of athletes under the same banner to like if, if what we want is true competition, mm-hmm. people are left to choose. Do I if I want to compete on yeah. an even playing field, I either need to be wearing those shoes or I'm I'm towing the line at a disadvantage or, yeah. or something comparable. My brand needs to make those. Or like we've seen, and yeah. we can discuss that at the, at the Canadian trials just this last weekend. Yes. Those who wanted to be in the mix were yep. either, either, <laughs> either dropped their contracts. Yep. Trevor Hoffbauer won in the yes. second fastest time by a Canadian ever. Yes. Um, 209.51. He beat Cam Levins. Yep. Cam was wearing a Hoka version of the, the Carbon X or whatever, but the, again, it clearly has a carbon fiber plate and it's supposed to be competitive or, or comparable to the Vaporfly. And uh, Trevor, longtime New Balance athlete and rep for the brand, yep. dropped New Balance going right going into the trials, knowing that he would be at a disadvantage. And he wanted he not only needed to win yep. to be guarantee a spot, but he needed to actually hit Make the time. A, a higher standard to to actually qualify for to to, comp- to compete in the Olympics. So that he wasn't in the position that the Bowerman team was the other day 
leading into the world championships where even though they, they placed in the right order, they didn't have the qualifier. Yeah. It's a lot harder to do in a marathon than it is on the track in terms of, you know, that window when you can do it. And so, yeah, yeah. he, he cut his ties with New Balance and, and went with, even though New Balance is working on <laughs> a shoe, he went yeah. with like, with, with a pair of Vaporflies and, uh, Emily Setlick, I don't know exactly her story, but I know she has long been a Saucony mm. athlete That's and, right, she, yeah. and she wore the Vaporflies. Even, uh, Dylan White's a good friend of mine. Um, I've worked with in the past and even trained with in the past. Um, he was a Mizuno runner for a long, long time. Nah, he wears, <laughs> he's wearing the Vaporfly, uh, next percent as well. And, um, and this is, I find this really interesting now, like, you know, talking to you, um, still being an active, um, uh, competitive runner, coach. And we talked about this offline before, you know, you're running, you're, you're basically training for CIM in um, December. And I guess your goal is just to run as fast as you can and maybe try and run like a personal best or whatever. And, um, uh, but you, you're, you're pretty adamant. You're, you're, you're definitely not um, switching out your shoes on the start line for a pair of Vaporflies. Is that that's right? <laughs> um, so a couple things. One, my goal is to run a personal best. Um, when I ran my very first marathon, not even knowing what the marathon really was, just on a bet or a dare, um, I felt like after I ran it and I surprised myself and pretty much everyone else, the standard at the time for the Olympic trials was 222. That was the B standard. Uh, yeah. This was in 2004. Mm. So I was still a, a college student. <laughs> I still had three years of athletic eligibility. So, I mean, I was young. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I, I did that off of 5K, 10K training. Um, no, I just did it off of get, get unfat training. Um, and, uh, so I figured, okay, I can knock off 13 minutes if I actually train for this thing. And, uh, I went through the typical figure the bonk out kind of stuff. Um, but I, 222 was my goal. And, uh, I ran a couple of marathons. I've run 225 a handful of times, 226, 227. Uh, so I've, I, cut about 10 minutes off of my time uh, from my first marathon, which isn't where I thought I would end up, but I found trail and ultra running and kind of just took a, <laughs> took a side trail and uh, the sport was kind of booming and uh, both for me personally and mentally uh, and also financially, just in terms of the opportunity sponsorship, it just seemed like a better fit for me. Yeah. And so I, I, I took that tangent eight, 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and so this is my first real build for a marathon. And so, yes, my goal would be, I, I don't know if and when I'll, I'll, I'll do another dedicated build for a marathon. I've run a couple of handful, you know, uh, marathon road marathons in the lead up for like a, mm. a road or trail 50 K or 50 miler. Um, but this is the first build. And so, yes, I w two goals would be run sub two twenty five or a PR. Um, but, it'd be nice to get under 222 because yeah. it'd be nice to run under two, 219 and, and uh, toe the line in Atlanta for the U.S. Yeah, um, yeah. In the Olympic trials, um, this might be my last chance to do that based on my age and stuff. So that leads us to an obvious next point. <laughs> You've yeah. got, there's a shoe out there that can give you three or four minutes of your time or more. Yeah, and, and there will be plenty of people who I have run with and beat or... Uh, who, you know, on paper, I, I'm a better runner than who will be wearing them. And so that's a hard thing for me to, uh, to swallow. I, my, the way that I'm, the way that I was raised and, and, and just who I am at my core is, uh, I'm a fiercely loyal person and I, and I am a 
person of integrity. And that is not, or, or I, I at least like to think of myself. That's, that's my one goal in life. I, I want people to know me as a man on my word. And I've signed a contract. And so I can either get out of my contract with Ultra because they're currently not making a shoe that competes, that can compete with the Vaporfly. Or, uh, so this isn't about, oh, Golden was my teammate in college or that we're friends or that I have long ties with the brand. It's not about that. It, mm. I, I, loyalty is important in terms of brand loyalty, but most of those positions, uh, there's not a whole lot of vertical movement on a brand in the shoe industry if you want to move vertically you you jump ship and go to another brand the current president ultra was with Saucony, i think prior <laughs> so yeah. i get that uh but as far as this year um what i'm trying to do within the rules and within the constraints of my contract i'm trying to work with alex mm. who works for the parent company of ultra yeah. and i'm trying to develop the best shoe that we can come up with prior to cim within the philosophy of within ultra. the philosophy of ultra um, and, um, and, and within the rules and, and that's yeah. the other, that's the other point. Um, there are people, shoe companies and individuals who, who don't feel that, um, at least in 2016 and even, even now that the alpha flies or the vapor flies are following the rules of the IAAF. Well, you, you kind of like, uh, kind of gave us a paraphrase I, of it there. Yeah. And, I, I alluded um, to that earlier, but, um, but vf and ultra have taken a fairly hard stance at least thus far and it's not just a marketing gimmick that it's not just that they want to remain zero drop or that they need to have the uh, foot shaped toe box or anything like that it's it's a matter of principle mm. uh and yet at the same time i've heard other people who consider themselves uh, people of principle uh one of them uh um, Jonathan Marcus, who mm -hmm. once coached and ran under the Nike banner on that Nike campus that we've talked about. And then um, Steve Magnus, mm -hmm. who uh, was one of the whistleblowers in the Oregon Project um, scandal. Yeah. Um, he was a former coach. Um, on their podcast recently, um, Magnus, I, I'm sorry, Jonathan Marcus, um, he said that even with his athletes that he coaches, he's no longer affiliated with Nike and has been affiliated with other brands. He he said he described these vapor flies as street legal drugs, performance enhancing drugs. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and if you are not, if you are not willing to use them, mm. you're giving you're giving other people an advantage, and mm. you're you're lining up and you're setting yourself up for a disadvantage. And just to, just to like put that in context, when people talk about. Um, using th stuff like EPO. EPO is the, the most widely known um, and abused uh, drug in endurance sport. Mm -hmm. It's not a, it's not a hard number, but people there there is um, uh, it is valid to say the people that use EPO often are getting about a four or five percent performance advantage. So if we're that, actually, yeah. So we're actually <laughs> talking well, yeah. If, if if they use it correctly, whatever that means. Yeah. Um, but um, we're actually talking about the same kind of ballpark of performance advantage potentially. Just to sort of, yeah, put that into context, yeah. Well, and, and, and I, if we're going to go there and split hairs, uh, so EPO is erythropoietin, which our bodies naturally create in the same way that our bodies naturally create testosterone and human growth hormone. Doping is injecting either synthetic EPO or testosterone or human growth hormone or injecting natural versions of those, mm -hmm. but intravenously. Yeah, uh, or yeah. or through other means, topically even um, it can be illegal, and so some 
ask that begs the question some ask okay mm -hmm. so if we're synthetically trying to enhance what the body can do anyway yep. so it's not that kipchoge or that um Bekele or that <laughs> the these droves of whether they be sub elite elite or recreational runners who are seeing significant prs yep. it's not that they're uh th that they're cheating per se yeah because they're using shoes that are that they're buying or that they're they're being given yeah but are they relative to history to the annals of history yeah and and track is a sport that it cares is. about its history Absolutely, more yeah. than baseball yeah. like yeah. some some would view this as as a bigger deal than the sammy sosa and mark mcguire home run um era they really yeah. would, and yeah. it, it, because because you're you're you can no longer compare apples to oranges. When was mm. the last time <laughs> that yeah. this many world records came down? It yeah. wasn't the four minute mile. And, and some sports are really are really totally controlled by technology. Mm -hmm. um, if anyone watches motorsport, Formula One, whatever, it's in, it's basically entirely about technology and controlled by technology. But and how much money you're willing to put yes. behind it? it yeah, the exactly. team that wins is the team with the most money. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. But this, like you say, entirely the other end of the spectrum. This is a. This is a pure sport. Yeah, it's it, about it's the way of the amateur, as they as they say in a in a chariots of fire. You know, like that yeah. that there's still this this sense that it's a, a gentleman's or a, a lady's game. That there's there's some sophistication to it, and that that it isn't sport if if you eliminate or dilute the competition. Mm. Like that that it mm. is it is head to head, and you and it's a fair playing field. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's really interesting at this point because. Um, so it, it, it's, it's raised all kinds of questions about legality and, um, and, and and the obvious question has popped up, you know, should this be illegal? Should the IWF come in and, uh, and basically just stop all this? Major problem the IWF have is that Nike have sold this shoe to thousands and thousands of runners around the world. Um, so it's been... The, the vapor flies, not the alpha the, the, flies. The, yeah, yeah. The, the, the previous yeah. versions. Yeah, since, um, uh, well, since 2017, people have been able to get hold of um, ver versions of the shoe. And Nike have kind of covered their ass a little bit in doing that. Obviously, they make money as well. But essentially, also, they they get it out there so they say well it's um it's free game a uh, fair game for anybody but originally uh, the rollout it was intentional like this short supply and huge <laughs> demand and just initially it initially yes. just create this demand Buzz. yes and, um yes and some have argued that when they did roll them out as prototypes yeah. that, that those athletes did have an unfair advantage because the technology wasn't out the 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 science wasn't out. The research wasn't out. Correct. The other brands, the, the basically anyone who wasn't a Nike athlete or, yep. or wasn't handed a pair of these prototypes was at a at a disadvantage, an unfair disadvantage. Absolutely. So so the the co ever controversial let's run the um, yes the Johnson brothers <laughs> have suggested that even Kipchoge's Olympic gold uh, should be revoked because he was he was wearing shoes that were not available to the general public at the time that uh, is... in 2016 or or Rupp's yeah. uh, medal. Um, that's an a very interesting point, but factually that is correct. It was only handed out to a few people, and Nike then had realized they had to change that down the line yeah. because they could see the potential for the shoe getting shut down. Mm -hmm. If you then if you then just do a massive production run, everyone gets this shoe, make it at a cost where people will pay more, but they can still afford it. You do cover off some of this. <laughs> some but of there, this there's still this exclusivity. Yeah. Nike yes. has chosen to do more online sales. And not even to make their products available in in your standard running shops. One hundred percent. They pulled it yes. off the store shelves, and they they want it to yes. to be this exclusive. Now that goes down a different path. We can talk about that in another Sorry. episode of this podcast, <laughs> which is basically the future of how how um, how uh, running shoe manufacturers will sell their shoes direct to the customer. There's there's a whole other podcast on that, <laughs> um, and Nike are the leader in that as well, and they're heading in a, in a particular direction with that. 
Uh, that also rolls in with what I was talking about before, about the modelling and all the data that's collected and the fact that they could predict Kipchoge's time so closely. You might think, well, that's great. What's the point in that? Well, the point in that is, a few, is, is how that's applied to the future because that is that model, which keeps getting refined, is extremely powerful once you can start to do it with, with other runners mm -hmm. um, en masse. That becomes incredibly powerful. What we're talking about there is the integration of big data, then machine learning and AI on that data, and then how you roll that out over an app, and then the future of how shoes are sold and how people then buy the next shoe and the next shoe, and how a manufacturer locks in, tries to lock in customers to their brand. And Nike are way ahead of everyone else on this because they've got more money, they've got more data, they're far further along the path. More scientists. So, yeah, more scientists. <laughs> and um, and so you might people might say, you know, why is that important? Who cares about models? Who cares about predicting Kipchoge's time? Believe me, you will, it, people will care in the future because that's what's being done with it. it. It will eventually filter down to the person on the street who doesn't go to a brick and mortar store anymore. They're buying their Nikes off the Nike app. The shoe is a smart shoe. It has technology built into the shoe. Nike have already been there and tested it with Nike Plus. It's coming back. And then that smart shoe will talk to your phone and that phone app is going to tell you a huge amount of information insane amount of information it's going to profile you and it basically in the future there's no reason why it can't start predicting your run times in races and that is heading towards market domination basically but um i mean getting back to the kind of legality part of of the shoes you know what what kind of worries me on the, fu in, the in the future horizon and I'm, I'm sure everybody is um is will we get to next year's olympic marathon in uh, japan I don't say Tokyo now because it's not in Tokyo anymore. But like in Japan, Sapporo. So yeah, right. Um, and are we just gonna see just like com a complete segregation, um, you know, of the haves and the have-nots? And you've got you've got runners who are who are Adidas runners or whatever runners, New Balance runners, and we've got a complete segregation. I mean, I my mind goes to someone like um, someone that I've helped with um, with Runscribe, for example. Um, uh, two brothers in Scotland, the Hawkins brothers, and Callum Hawkins is like, is a real kind of like um, a flag bearer for like British athletics in the marathon and a, and, and a really good marathon runner. Um, ran in the Olympics and actually led the Olympic marathon a little bit in in, uh, in Rio. And uh, you know if he turns up in uh, <laughs> in a New Balance shoe, he's got he, he got no chance. And he's going to get smoked basically. And um, yeah, that that worries me. That worries me that to watch you know an olympic marathon um and it's just it's just a two it's a two it's a two it's a segregated race um and i'm not talking about south africa i'm talking about marathon run. it's a <laughs> it's segregation right it's like um yeah people just getting smoked by people that have got shoes and um i think it's i think it's got to be figured out right now of course we know that the iwf have a special committee that look into shoes and technology and that kind of stuff and they're meeting this week um but all of the signs are that the IWF will turn around and just say shoes fine, not interested in uh, shutting it down. Well, and and some of that discussion, uh, I know we're looking forward, but is based on the past. Yeah. And so I think it is important to note a few things, and and I got this from Alex Hutchinson. Um, Shout out to Alex. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, from the the House of Run podcast, um, and he he discussed some of this evolution, um, and. One of it, one of one bit of information that some people don't un, don't know is that uh, Adidas not only had the Boost technology, which was 
supposed to provide one to two percent uh, of a boost. Uh, <laughs> but they also had a carbon fiber plate in some of their shoes. And um, this technology was developed at the University of Calgary by um, a scientist by the name of Darren Stepanishin, I believe. Um, they eventually pulled that shoe offline because of an additional, according to Alex, an additional $2.50 per shoe for production. and that somehow they weren't able to hype the shoe enough to get the returns that they needed to add that carbon fiber plate. Now, he, uh, Dr. Stepanishin at the University of Calgary, um, which just, we just happen to be fortunate that we're here in the Bow Valley, um, but there is a lot of biomechanical uh, science done and shoe and gait analysis done at the University of Calgary. Yeah. Um, and you you know that more than I, but uh, sure. Golden Harper, a, a great deal of the research that he did when he was developing his ideas around sh uh, shoes for ultra running, mm -hmm. much of that data, much of that science came out of the University of Calgary. Total side thing, if anyone's interested, the, the, the kind of godfather of all of this, the guy behind all this, is a guy called Ben O'Nig, um, who set up that department and is basically kind of like the most published person in the world ever in uh, running biomechanics and, and had basically created a link with Adidas and what you're talking about exactly. If anyone's interested, on the, my runphysics.com website, uh, I do have the, um, you can listen to the podcast. Uh, it was actually a huge podcast that I did with Ben O'Nig in his office, if anyone's interested in that. Thank you. Just plugging my own stuff. <laughs> no, no, no. That's that's great. So, so one of the students of that program, uh, by the name of Gung Luo, after after working on <laughs> uh, some of this Adidas funded research, he went to Nike, um, and and they obviously for patent reasons and things they probably had to make a few tweaks, but he. He essentially created a Nike version of what Adidas had already created. And I believe um, Adidas called theirs the Pro Plate. Yeah, that um, sounds right, yeah. But the, the new curve and the new foam, um, it became the um, the current Vaporflies or, uh, or, or the, the prototypes of the Vaporflies, and, and then the, yeah. there have since been iterations of that. So part of the reason that it can't just be banned is because the technology was once used and, and commercially available and it wasn't banned then and it was available for competition i don't know that many people used it or that it, mm. that they had the science quite right um to get the gains that, that people are getting yeah um but it, uh there is a really good conversation and um and actually jeffrey burns <laughs> um a, a colleague and friend of mine he he helped crew for me at, at the jfk 50 last year um and he's an ultra athlete but he's he's a graduate student um at the University of Michigan in, uh, I believe, their exercise science and biomechanics uh, department. Um, he's written a number of articles just in the last few weeks about this, um, but one of them was, was entitled Of Souls and Souls, I believe, and um, yeah. and we'll, we'll put a link to that, but but one of the biggest issues that he describes is, is just that it, it does take away that abil ability to, um, to compare apples to apples that, yeah. that people love about the track. Um, that being said, you know, even with the banister mile, um, he ran that on a cinder track. He did have pacers. He even had a pacer the year before, who, who, a, a teammate who, uh, I got this from Alex Hutchinson as well, who who um, sandbagged the first 800 right, so that he was available yeah. to kick with him. And then the next year he had people hang with him for, or teammates get get uh, three of the four laps in. Yeah. And that was on a cinder track. 
it's very rare that people run on cinder anymore um <laughs> most of those are mondo tracks those were with uh leather spikes and most people are wearing um very th paper thin spikes so so technology has changed and, and mm. you can't you can't totally be a purist forever i i, I mean i i am like i've mentioned a, a self-proclaimed luddite i I try not to just jump on the bandwagon of any new technology that comes around, um, and I like to keep things simple. But even people like Trevor Hoffbauer, who just mm -hmm. won, um, who who doesn't train or race with a watch, or at least doesn't use pace, um, he wore the the Vaporflies, yeah. or the, the Next Percents, the next and so percent, yeah. uh, you know there, it, it's a it's a tough area that we're in. It's it's uh, it's not tough. It's it is exciting. Um, we are in innovation. We we we're not. Uh, against technology or against um, science, but I think there are valid arguments on both sides. Yeah, um, it, I, I, I totally agree because, like, in going forward, over the, especially over the next year, because a lot of things are going to spin out and then try and figure themselves out over the next year. Mm -hmm. And clearly, you know, every ma manufacturer has, in theory, the not the money, but they in theory have the ability to make a competing product, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that might well even itself out over time. That the other products from the other manufacturers get better and better, and then it, it becomes a bit more evening. But your point exactly about about records and about comparing today to the past that's that's an issue yeah right there there's no question if we take bridget Koskai and we give her those old zoom streaks those old nike streaks that um paula Bob had yeah. she ain't breaking the record yeah <laughs> no way yeah. <laughs> um you know uh, and that's without the other suspicions of, of other yeah malfeasance or you know uh, right sure and, and, i'm not going that, there by the way What's that? I'm not going there, by the way. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, and 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 I'm not asking you to, but some have suggested that you know she she is affiliated with a group who is under scrutiny, and and there were even her coach. I it sounds like maybe misspoke, but about her missing more tests than than one should. I I'm not trying to uh, mm. disparage her or take that away from her either. But but any time a record falls, it's suspect, and so people will look to it. Was it the shoes? Were they do? Was it another mm. form of performance enhancing? And and mm. I guess back to our point before, even during the EPO era, not that yes. people aren't doing it now. Yeah, times weren't dropping this quick, and and so there. Th th something's happening and and it's not just a rena renaissance in terms of just the excitement around the sport yeah. as, as beautiful as the Ineos 159 was and, and as well orchestrated and as well organized as that was mm. um i think for people who want to take a step back this isn't me being critical this isn't me representing it, um ultra mm. in fact it annoys the hell out of me when people representing other brands just poo poo on nike because it's easy to pick on the big the, the, the big beast guy. yeah 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 and and then you see that Brooks <laughs> is making a prototype that yeah. that uh, that basically any major player in the road running realm is is trying to compete and they know they have to. Yeah. yeah. Um. And so it 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 I kind of I I don't kind of I I view it very disingenuous when anyone just attacks Nike because they're Nike. I yeah. Think, yeah. You know it if you A six is making them. You know it, yeah. everyone's trying to compete, which is part of how the market works and, and that sort of thing but yeah but one thing that jeff and some others have have suggested jeff burns again uh is is regulating the stack height okay go yeah. back to the 31 millimeters interesting Tr don't don't allow these 36 millimeters or right. certainly don't allow the the 41 millimeters uh, uh, again yeah or or like people have said about the alpha flies mm, maybe three carbon fiber plates uh, uh, and the pods and, and the p is a little excessive. If it is actually working as a mechanical spring, um, 
a, a smaller company, I believe it was called Spira or something like that back in the day, or some starts with this, it was tiny. They, they, they threw out a, a challenge saying like, if anyone runs a world record in these shoes, we will give you a million dollars or something like that. Right. And, and they were, they went out of business pretty quick because yeah. it was deemed that yeah, that was, this, that was this, an unfair advantage. And this so, even the company from California, APL, Athletic Performance Labs, um, uh, two brothers set that company up. And even that shoe has been pretty much like out, like outlawed, like, you know, you can't wear this shoe. It's far, it's far too much of an artificial advantage. It, I found it really interesting, um, you know, what, 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 I think Jeff's line of thinking is absolutely awesome. I think that's like correct because like it's certainly where my line of thinking goes and it's, it seems logical. I actually wouldn't say 31 mil on the drop because um, I kind of go all the way back to, in my head, um, Gabriel Selassie, I mean, 2008, Gabriel Selassie in Berlin uh, uh, set the world record then. Um, that was not a boost shoe. Those were probably the Addy Zeros. That was an Addy Zero. back in yeah. the day. Yeah, Adios. Yeah. It was the, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. the, the, the precursor Adios. I kind of go back to that to two thousand eight and um, and Gibby Selassie running around about two thousand uh, two hours and three minutes whatever it was back then, and I think to myself, kind of that that like you know that I would think and maybe I'm too aggressive on this, I would like say that kind of shoe, if you're gonna set a world record, or you're gonna do anything really superficial like that, I'm like maybe that should be how we you model the shoe that should be the rules and the regulations. That wasn't a 30, 30, 31 mil drop, <laughs> not at all. Yeah. And that's what I was suggesting before, you know, with the Zoom streak, that Nike have had the luxury of keeping that relatively true to what the streak concept was because they were able to spin off with the Vaporfly. And um, I still see that Zoom streak even today as being more of a classical uh, race issue. And... Um, uh, but yeah, he, so but, I, I like I like Jeff's thinking. Mm -hmm. I would be more aggressive. Yeah, because that he's he's allowing the the four percent to still basically exist then and be competitive and be legit. Whereas I would I'll go, go back. To, yeah. Uh, well, again, as someone who uh, I, I drove, I think three or four hours with my dad to Portland uh, as a country bumpkin. We went to the big city because it was the only place that Endurance, the Disney film about, uh, about I Like Ever Selassie, Selassie yeah. came out. And then I, I think we purchased a couple VHSs <laughs> because we watched it so many times. That first it, that first opening section is so good. It's so beautiful. <laughs> it's poetry in motion. And so, yeah, I, I'm a I'm a um, Eiley fan um, to the core. Um, so I agree with that. But if we're going to talk about mechanical doping, okay, one of the re one of the accusations that people have, if, if doping is going to be effective, and 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 if and when people get uh, the uh, the the unfair advantage and they're able to fly below the radar, one of the arguments is that even if they're clean, quote unquote clean, on race day, they've already done the training and they've benefited by yeah. using the synthetic or yeah. or. Uh, natural um, occurring hormones yep. that have been injected into the and body. we know that we know that if you cite, if you don't take the something like EPO for the three weeks leading up to a race it cycles out the system and then it, people don't detect it but you've already gained the fitness yeah and and the question that I have I've I've, <laughs> uh, I've worn the streaks okay I broke my navicular bone in the streaks <laughs> I they have nothing between them and the ground so I uh, Loved them, you know. I, my brother ran some great races in them as well. I, I I wore them even through university, and and I think maybe even, I, I wore shoes comparable to the streaks for some of my first marathons. Yeah. And and then the Addy Zeros and stuff like that. 
Mm, it's apples and oranges. I haven't even put a pair of vapor flies on, but I can tell you just by looking at them that like <laughs> those look like clouds and the streaks. Um, you can't walk for days after after running a marathon on pavement, yeah. especially some of the some of the races like like Houston or like Seattle that that it's yeah. like actual concrete. Like I mean, yeah. those, those destroy your legs because they do nothing to to protect your legs. Absolutely. And so, if we're looking at it from training advantages doping or performance enhancement happens in the training process and and some of the accusations against even the Oregon project mm. were that they were doing things that were even legal technically in terms of whatever was being ingested or or whatever the substance the yeah. substance uh, l-carnitine totally mm. legal mm. but it was just the quantities were a little bit excessive to why were they doing it one experimentally sure at, at this point that's all they're all they, they can prove but they were trying to figure out if people could not just perform better, but if they could recover better before between hard sessions, between yeah. the long run and the workout or whatever. Absolutely, yeah. That what I hear and what I'm reading from everyone, even those who are unaffiliated with Nike but just happen to slap on a pair when they race or are training in them, what people are telling me is that the recovery time is significantly greater mm -hmm. or they have legs with 10K to go, whereas yep. most, I mean, that's part of what I'm discussing with, with Alex right now is like, yep. yeah, I can go 30K, what I need is something that actually gives me some return when my mechanics and just the fact that I'm depleted and, and everything else starts breaking down, which is the wall for everyone else. Yeah. I want something that, that carries me and gives me a little bit more return. Yeah. And that's what I'm hearing the vapor flies do. Yeah. And if they're doing that in, in the race, that's one thing. But if yeah. they're doing that in training, if mm. they're allowing you to do two more reps, two more thousand meter reps, Absolutely. or if they're allowing you to do um, that that 30K or 40K long run, yeah. And then recovering and being able to come back and do cramming in, say, five more sessions, even in an entire buildup, yeah. because you're, you can reduce the number of recovery days that you have to take. If you're getting that much more quality, it's yep. the same thing as cycling yep. um, testosterone, the same thing as cycling with EPO or or uh, at least theoretically in terms theoretically, of the benefits. Yeah. And, and, and then if you look at the percentages of, of what that leads to, yep. it's in the same ballpark. It is in the same ballpark. And, yeah. and, and, and yet when you see the... the of overabundance of of times that have dropped it's hard to argue that 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 those who don't wear them are at an unfair advantage um and if if the other brands aren't able to create something that competes mm. uh so jared ward you know runs yes. for saucony yeah. uh, sixth at the rio olympics i'm not sure that he had a prototype on then but i know he had a prototype on at new york and so it's it's not that the other brands aren't creating something, but but like yeah. if if like I mentioned, if Alex is correct in that PBAX really isn't available to anyone other than Nike because they've already yeah. got the orders in, absolutely. Yeah. Then how can a guy like me who chooses to run for a company other than Nike yeah. or or has a contract that doesn't allow me to throw yeah. those shoes on? Um, that is a monopoly. That is it, an unfair it, advantage. Absolutely. And uh, uh, as, as we spoke with Alex about um, Nike, have had so much data collection. They've tuned so much. Um, as Alex said, uh, 100%, he was absolutely bang on right. You can't just throw the components together. The whole system has to be tuned. And Nike have done that over years now. They've tuned the system. And so that's the problem for all the other manufacturers is they don't have the money, they don't have the size of the teams to quite quickly tune the system. They can stick a foam in, they can stick a carbon plate in, with that on it. But if they don't work together really well, if the mechanical properties of each don't respond in synchronization as the foot is weighted and then releases, 
then it doesn't really matter. And I think that's what you see with the Hoka Carbon X, mm -hmm. is that the, the, there's, a, there's, there's some... a carbon fiber yeah, it's plate in there. But... Yeah, awesome, <laughs> sweet. No, no, but the, but the system isn't tuned, mm -hmm. and that's why the Carbon X won't, be, won't perform the way that, uh, that an X percent is going to perform. Uh, Hoka just haven't, haven't got the money, they haven't got the size of the team and the development, they haven't got the data to back it up, and they haven't done the tuning of that system, um, which, which Nike are just so far ahead on that. Um, so yeah, it's it's. <laughs> well, I'm going to give yeah. one more example. So yeah, the Chicago yeah. Marathon again. I I'm American. I'm not. A, I try not to be Americentric, but that's just the the news that I ingest and the people that I know, because uh, that's where I was born and raised. And um, but uh, at the Chicago Marathon, I believe there were ten guys under two twelve. Yeah. And two of them were not wearing Vaporflies, but they were wearing either the Hoka or yeah. the Saucony efforts to be equivalent to. Yeah. Um, the vapor flies mm -hmm. in 2000, uh, I, I've discussed this dearth, uh, um, of underperformance, particularly in the marathon, mm -hmm. uh, in, in us history in the year 2000. I don't, I think maybe one guy, Dan Brown was the only guy who, who actually ran under 212 anytime in that even build toward the Olympics. I could be wrong. Um, eventually Kalad Kanuchi, who was a, a, a Moroccan yeah. who became a naturalized American, yeah, um, was the world record holder, but that was in the 2005, 2006 or something, I think mm -hmm. when he was breaking the records. Um, and I don't believe that he was able to represent America at the time. So anyway, in 2000, no one was even knocking on the door at 210. Mm. And, and now we've got, um, 10 guys mm. with different technology, mm. Training has changed. We talked about the stamina stuff and, and getting back to that running to the edge yeah. um, that Joe V. Hill and, and Bob Larson and, and Schumacher and, and Salazar and, and, and the Hansons have, have brought back. But uh, th that threshold training, uh, stamina training that kind of left for a bit, but 10 guys. I think I think the previous Chicago, at least in America, in counting Americans, I think it was only one or two and, and we had 10. Sure, an Olympic year is coming up and stuff like that, but but it's been like two decades since we've had that many people, not even in the same race, but like in the same year, right. from the same country that that are in that range. To, the, the the Olympics are actually interesting now. Um, yep. And then actually another uh, the, the debut marathon by an American, Leonard Courier, at the Amsterdam Marathon, I believe. I, he uh, he ran two oh seven and change, so it, that makes him. Well, one of the best uh, going into the trials because other than Galen, no one has even run under 208. Um, Amazing. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure he was in the vapor flies because yeah. um, and, and, I think he was 11th at the race and, and a bunch of people who <laughs> we're not even talking about were, were well ahead of him. Wow. Same thing at, at the Toronto Marathon. You know, yeah. there were the, the, the Canadian soil record was broken 205, I believe. Um, by a, a member of the NN, yeah, uh, right. what do they call him? Baby police or baby, <laughs> yeah. what's his handle? Uh, but a uh, baby face something, but, um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, he, he, he set the new Canadian right. soil record at 205. Yes. Um, but Trevor was five minutes or almost five minutes behind him, four minute, four and change yeah. behind him. But again, they, they look very different. Uh, Trevor's six, three and, and I, I'd be willing to bet weighs at least as much as I do, um, which isn't a small guy relative to some of these guys. And, and like you said, the technology yeah. may have favored him. That's again, that's not to take away from what Trevor did in training mm. and the effort that he put in. But if, yeah. again, if he or anyone else trained in those shoes and was willing to get those benefits, mm. not saying it's doping cause it's legal, 
but but how can you compare those performances or even those training blocks yeah. to yeah. people that were training in the streaks or, <laughs> or worse <laughs> or the the lunar racers or you know the previous yeah. technology yeah yeah, yeah. So. i mean i'll kind of kind of uh, close it out uh, close the section up by saying by just kind of drawing people's attention back to um you know go back go back on the internet and um uh, go on youtube uh you know have a have a look at uh, kipchoge's run again in the 159 um event and um and just look at the last five minutes and uh we're looking at somebody who theoretically is operating at the absolute human limit um so we're talking about you know uh nothing left to spare you know it's just pushing to the absolute limit of what a human being can do people have talked about roger bannister they've talked about landing on the moon all that kind of stuff whatever um but uh look at the last five minutes of that run and what you'll see is last 400 meters he breaks into a sprint he's he's lucid he's absolutely knows what he's doing he's not um mentally drained he's able to punch the air gesture to the crowd sprint to the finish line jump across the finish line hug everybody and doesn't need to sit on the ground doesn't need to collapse and basically doesn't appear to need very much recovery at all and this is in the context of somebody who's doing what no human has ever done before the absolute human limit of the last 0.1 percent whatever does that jive that's not the same as Shalane finishing the New York City Marathon in a tactical race or mm -hmm. or Des winning Boston. That's not to yeah. take away from either of them, but yeah. they both ran below what they're actually capable of running in terms of effort and, and maximal yeah. effort. They, they, they won on strategy and grit. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's one thing to pump your fists and, and gesture and say things that are going to go viral on the Internet. Yeah. It's another thing to be running faster than any human has ever covered the distance yeah. before and still be as lucid as you yeah. were describing. And so I just kind of like leave it there for people that, um, that, that, that for me shows the power of the shoes for sure. And, um, we, we, you know, propulsion is one thing we're talking about, like augmenting the, um, the mechanism of propulsion off the ground. And, but the other critical thing is, um, reduction of fatigue during 42 kilometers of running. And, um, I think the re reduction of fatigue part of it, um, I, I think you'd have to be smoking some serious drugs to not say that in that last 400 meters, what you saw, what everybody saw there was quite incredible lack of fatigue <laughs> at the end of the most amazing piece of marathon running in history. Um, and uh, yeah, that's the power of, uh, that's the power of shoe technology right there. <laughs> yeah. So if, uh, if you've got a marathon coming up, and and you fit the bill and that and the mechanics work um as long as they're legal we recommend getting a pair of whatever shoe brand you like and whichever shoes fit go to your local running store and try and see what you can find uh reality is that not very many are available to the general public and <laughs> that's part of the hype around it but um but as long as it's legal that's that's up to you um i apologize for being such a purist i, I don't take uh I don't even like taking Advil during, before, or after races, and so uh, I don't like taking an inhaler um, because it's just, you know, I, I want to do it off of my own um, abilities, um, but that's not to say that those who choose to do what is legal and, and accepted as legal and, and status quo, go for it. You're running against those times now, but, but again, the argument is mm -hmm. what about the people that ran all those times without that? Um, we appreciate you listening, and we um, <laughs> hopefully you got in a good long run or a really long track session or commute on this one. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. 
uh, we've we've heard some good feedback. Um, for this episode, I do want to give a shout out to to Sunny C. Sunny's been helping us with the with the show, uh, with the sound, with the site. Uh, we're excited to to share the new site with you, which should look a lot better than what I um, started create <laughs> at the onset. Um, and and we appreciate the support of of others out there. Um, we ask you to listen, subscribe, share this or other episodes with your friends, and uh, let us know what you think. Join the join the Facebook group, the Art and Science of Running podcast, um, or you know like us on Facebook, follow us on on Twitter and Instagram, so that we can continue these conversations and 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 also get some of your not just your feedback but even some of the ideas that you have in terms of who you want to hear from. Um, we have kind of a list of people that we have in mind, but, um, we're, we're going to potentially start, you know, getting other people locally, but also not so locally on the show from time to time. So let us know topics, questions, and, uh, and people you'd like to hear about and from. So thanks.